Guys, today, let me just kind of map out where we're going. Okay, you guys know what, this is episode six. So if you don't know what you're jumping into, go watch the last five episodes. Uh, I'll link them in the description below, Lord willing, later. Uh, but right now, the outline for today is this. What I'm gonna do is, is map out what I believe is the validating presence of faith in a believer's life, which is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God confirms, assures, brings certainty, validates the presence of our faith and our sonship, our daughtership as children of God. And so I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 6 through 8. We're going to look at three chapters in Romans, all in one literary unit. We're going to look at that as part of Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans 6 through 8. What I'm going to do is I'm going to contrast the life of the unbeliever in Romans 7 with the life of the believer in Romans 8. Um, this is a new view of mine that I've adapted over the last year. Like, when I read Romans chapter 7, the way I've read Romans 7 the last 29 years of my life, I'm 30 now, I've always read it as, not that I was reading in the womb, but like, you know what I mean. Pretty much since I've been a believer, I read Romans 7 as being a, about a struggling believer fighting the flesh. I'm going to show you why I don't believe there's any evidence whatsoever for us to think that. And I believe that Romans 7 contrasts the unbeliever striving under the law versus the believer in Romans 8 who's free from condemnation. Then what we're going to do is we're going to jump into Romans 8. We're going to look at the presence of the Spirit. We're going to go through Romans uh, 2. We're going to go through 1 John. And we're going to look at Galatians. All of these scriptures that speak of the, pr the presence of the Spirit. And so this is going to be... Uh, not an exhaustive teaching on the presence of the Spirit, but as much as I need to communicate about what the Spirit does in our life, who He is, why He's given to us, what His purpose is in our life. We're going to look at why the Spirit has, given, has been given to believers. You know, you can know you have the Spirit. You're given the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit of God indwells a believer. The second you believe, He assures our inheritance, all that. Then what I'm going to do is we're going to end this session in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, and a, a lot of you, for those of you that hold to free grace, you're already pulling out your, your, the notes you've taken to disprove what I'm about to say, because you know where I'm going in 1 John 3, that no one who keeps on sinning has been born of God. I'm going to explain that as best as I can as it connects to Romans 6 through 8, as it connects to the rest of what we see about the Spirit of God, and how I, I think this all comes together. Because again, remember we're talking about lordship, salvation versus free grace theology. And the two competing views mainly, okay, that get the most airtime are that Lordship Salvation essentially will say, and I'm going to best represent Lordship to the best of my abilities as honestly as I can, Lordship Salvation will say um, faith equals, uh, will result in good works, good fruit, uh, endurance, perseverance. And there's, there's a dimension of that that I agree is true. But how, how far they take that and the language they use and the burden they place on people and the, and the way they inadvertently actually make it sound like legalistic works-based salvation, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. Now, the same is true. I'm sweating. The same is true as for the free grace side of things. The free grace essentially says, hey, you believe is free game. All you got to do is believe. And we're all on the same page that we're saved through faith. We just need to define faith. What is faith? What does faith always result in? What always accompanies faith? We need to define repentance, which we've already done. And the free grace side of things says essentially, hey, you just believe 
the life that results from that, the, the, the presence of fruit or the lack of fruit or the good works that do or don't result, all of that is irrelevant. The fact is, if you're convinced of the gospel, even if your life doesn't ever look like it, you're saved. You're good. You can go off and, and again, I'm not going to use the hypothetical of worshiping Satan because they don't like that. But I will say this, just to kind of plan for what people are going to say about 1 John 3, I have heard a lot of different arguments about that. So I'm going to address that when we get to 1 John 3. Know that. Know that. What I also want you to understand is that my question typically for the free grace individual is this. If you say that you are indeed convinced in your mind of the gospel, that you believe, we all agree that if you believe, you absolutely guaranteed have the presence of the Spirit in your life. That's a promise from God. That he fills a, a born-again believer with a new nature, a new heart, a new standing, and the presence of his spirit. That happens the very microsecond you believe. If that's the case, then my question to the free grace individual, and I want you to chew on this as we navigate this, is how do you know that you have the presence of the spirit? Now, they might, you know, uh, push back by saying, why do we need to know or why do we need any external physical evidence of the presence of the Spirit. And, and I would just raise my hand and say, because Scripture actually says that. Scripture very clearly, explicitly says this over and over and over. And if you say, well, I know I believe the way I know that I exist, I understand you can get as philosophical as you want with it, right? But at the end of the day, what is the root of your being convinced? How are you certain? How are you assured? What makes you believe and make, what makes you convinced? that you indeed have the, the, the indwelling of the Spirit. Where, where does, how do you qualify that? Do you need to qualify that? And then another question would be like, so is it that I believe I have the Spirit because I, I'm convinced of the gospel? Or is it that I'm convinced of the gospel, therefore I know I have the Spirit? Meaning, like does faith come before the Spirit or, or does the Spirit, not, in, not to get into like a Calvinistic regeneration kind of debate, but the question, I wrote it down. I want to make sure I communicate it in a way that I wrote it down because I don't want it to get lost in translation. It was helpful the way that it came to me. Um, where is it? Please. No. No, no, no. Okay, I have it somewhere. But essentially the question is, um, am I convinced that I have the Spirit because I know I believe, right? Or do I know I believe because I see evidence of the presence of the Spirit? That, that's what I'm trying to say. Thank you, Lord, for helping me communicate that. Please help me to communicate this in a helpful way. I'm... I'm See this beautiful sweat? It's the result of running. And not running well. I stumbled the whole way. It was like Fall Guys in real life. Okay. I had a comment on one of my last YouTube videos that got deleted coincidentally by the person who originally started the thread. I'm not saying why, but it's just, it's interesting. And essentially they were saying, you're telling people that your faith must produce good fruit, must produce good works. 
And I commented and I said, no, your faith must produce good fruit in quotes. Saying that is not the same as what I'm actually saying. I'm saying God will produce, not against your free will, not to the neglect of your free will, but in, in, in participation with your free will, God will produce good evidence, good fruit, good, good works through your faith by his spirit. The other person was accusing me essentially of telling people, hey, you must, you have to, you're required, or this. And all I'm saying is what faith will do by the grace of God. All I'm saying is what God promises he will do through the person. One statement is centered around you and your efforts. And it's a requirement for you to meet to really know you have faith. The other one, which is my position, is centered around God and his grace, what he's promised, what he's guaranteed, what will happen through the life of the believer with their participation by the grace of God. And so as, as we go to Romans chapter 6, verse 8, I've talked enough, talked your ears off, and we've gotten nowhere. But I want you to think about that. Am I convinced I have the Spirit because I believe in the gospel without any evidence of the Spirit? Or do I know I've come to believe in the gospel because I see evidence of the Spirit testifying of my faith? Think about that. Romans chapter 6, okay? The main passage that's in question and I'm not saying that every free grace individual does this, but typically the, 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 the most common view of Romans chapter 7, verse 13 through 25, um, is that this is a, a believer struggling with the flesh, fighting sin. Now, I'm not saying that a believer never struggles with sin, doesn't fight sin, and doesn't give in to sin. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is I don't believe Romans 7 right here is talking about a believer. If that's the case, everything changes when it comes to when we get to Romans 8. Okay, so let me show you. I'm, I, I think there's pretty convincing evidence. I changed my view, like probably back in June. Back in June. Because someone was like, hey, I heard you talk about Romans 7. Here's another view. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've been teaching it wrong all this time. That's embarrassing. So Romans 6. We're just going to take note of what we're seeing. Paul is essentially, the main point of 6 through 8 is going to be the concept of death as it relates to sin because of what the law demands as a consequence for sin. So we're going to see why death, right? Why does sin result in death? And how does the law play into this? Not as the problem, but as sin capitalizing on the law and sin being provoked by the law, you might say. So Romans 6, 1, it says, what shall we say then? Look, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Now, both the Lordship and free grace agree. We're not excusing, justifying, or saying we should live in sin. Okay? They both agree. We all agree on that. That grace is not a license uh, to, to live free in sin necessarily. That doesn't, we're not talking about salvation. What we're saying is grace is not a reason to live in sin. It's actually quite the opposite. Grace is our motivation and empowerment and reason to live free from it um, in response to the love of God for us. I thought I had stopped sweating by now. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died, talking about a believer, believers are those who have died to sin, and he isn't, he isn't necessarily saying we will not. Okay, I'll give you that. He's not saying we will not live in it. He's saying, how can we? Is that noting a possibility? 
Is he saying it's possible for someone who died to sin, died to the old life, is it possible for them as born again new creations in Christ to live in what they died to? Now there's no answer up front yet. Just this, this little phrase right here might insinuate and make, make you think, yeah, we can, we just shouldn't. I think he's saying we should not. And also as we get to Romans 7 and Romans 8, 1 John 3, I think you're going to see also that this is an, 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 an impossibility. We'll qualify that. So we see that we're born again, right, for the purpose of walking in newness of life. You're going to see that. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Okay, so we've died to sin. We should no longer live in it practically. This is practical living. I've highlighted all these different things for you to see. Uh, purple relates to the old self, right? Uh, let's remove this. Purple relates to the old self into his death. Well, I guess that's why I had that highlighted. This is uh, relating to your old self. You died to your old self. Your old self was crucified. The old self is going to be con is going to be different from the body of sin. I want you to write that down. That the body of sin. Good morning, Leandra. The body of sin I live in right now as a believer and unbelievers are living in. That body of sin is different than the old self. Okay. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, immersed into Christ Jesus, we, we were baptized into his death. It was a participatory death. We were involved in that. We were buried with him by baptism into death. There's a lot of death going on, isn't there? So the question becomes, why death? How death? Why sin? Why the law? Is the law an issue? And he's going to defend the law and say, no, the law is good. The law is very good. Sin in me is the issue, provoked by the law, capitalizing on the law, taking advantage of the law. So we were immersed into Jesus, how? Into his death by believing. So as he died as the sacrifice for sin, so his substitutionary death applies to me through faith. So the law is good, as we're going to see, it's not the issue. Our old self, condemned by sin, was the issue. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, this is the born-again experience. Dying to our old self, being buried with Christ in baptism. Not water baptism, just think immersion. Baptism doesn't always involve water. Okay, In order that just as... Christ was raised from the dead, raised from the dead. Whoa. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, here's the purpose. Why were we baptized into the death of Christ? Well, to come up a new creation, to be raised from the dead. Well, that's talking about positionally our new identity, our new standing, our new position in Jesus Christ. But walking in newness of life speaks to the living out, the practical everyday experience and outworking of that new position I have in Christ. I died to my old self. I am a new creation. So as a new creation in Jesus raised to life, the purpose of me dying to the old self is to walk in the newness of life. Now the free grace individual will typically say, yeah, that's a possibility, not a guarantee. Meaning, 
you are born again, you are a new creation, that doesn't guarantee you'll walk in the new life available to you. But that doesn't void the fact you are a new creation, okay? I'm gonna address that. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll certainly will be united with him in a resurrection like his. So I want you to see the forward-looking writing of Paul here. He's looking forward to the resurrection. He's looking back at where you came from, going, here's why you had to die. Here's why sin's an issue. Here's why the law brings death per the sin that comes into the world. Here's why the law actually condemns sinners. And here's how resurrection life can happen. We're looking forward. So if I was baptized into his death, as he was raised to life, right now I'm spiritually alive. One day, I'll be resurrected to a glorified body with Christ. So we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that. Here's another reason, another reason why our old self was crucified with Jesus. Why our old life had to die. Why we had to die to that old way of existing. Okay? It's in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So this is why I think the walking in newness of life here is not just Paul saying, hey, you were raised to life so you could be alive spiritually. He's saying you were raised to life spiritually so you can live differently practically. Here's why I think that, because of the whole body of sin being brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So the old self here in verse six seems to be different from the body of sin that's brought to nothing. The body that I live in is brought to nothing because of the fact my old dead self condemned was crucified. So one results in the other. One makes way for the other, right? Because I was crucified with him, now the body of sin can be brought to nothing and I can and I should walk in newness of life. For what reason? Well, to glorify God, I said nothing about validating faith. I didn't say anything about that. So don't soundbite this, right? But I want you to see the old self being crucified is the reason the body of sin is brought to nothing. That's why we can no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, typically, the being enslaved to sin here, people will say, well, now, hey, you are uh, no longer under the penalty of sin. And I believe that. We're going to see that in Romans 8 in a very clear statement. I believe that we are no longer enslaved to the penalty and the power of sin. The punishment of sin has been dealt with in Christ. Romans 8, right? In his body of sin, human evil took up residency to be condemned in the flesh of Christ as our sacrificial offering, as our substitutionary atonement. He takes our place so that now, my body of sin can be brought to nothing. And now this body of sin that I believe is in mind here, I'm no longer enslaved to its passions. You're going to see that, okay? This is not just talking about penalty and punishment. This is talking about the actual influence on my life. I'm not saying Christians live perfect. I am saying that now I can choose to resist the passions and the desires of my sinful body. Now, for one who has died, has been set free from sin. Remember what Jesus says, he who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, is it that you're practicing, that's why you're a slave? Or is it that because you're a slave, you can only practice? Probably both and. One who has died has been set free from sin. So the old self being crucified results in us 
no longer being enslaved to sin, being set free from sin, right? The power, the penalty, as well as the influence on my life. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we also will live with him. There's the resurrection idea. So everything in green uh, hints at the resurrection, okay? Everything in purple has to do with the old life, dying to the old self. The yellow is for the reason. That's why, okay? So we believe we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. So there's death. How many times have we seen death died? die a lot in seven verses. It's literally been like at least once in every single verse. What do you think so far is the main topic? Death. Now watch, death no longer has dominion over him, no longer has mastery over the person, Jesus, right? Christ is in mind here. Death no longer has dominion over him, which we're going to see the believer who is in Christ is no longer enslaved to death as well because we've been set free from sin. And since we're no longer enslaved to sin, then death goes with it. For the death he died, he died to sin. I mean, three times death is mentioned in half of a verse, in not even a complete sentence. Once for all. So Jesus' death is not a continual sacrifice. It's a once for all eternal eternally sufficient sacrifice. Now once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God, which you might say is continual. Meaning the death was temporary. The death was once. The living to God is eternal. The living to God is a continual process, never to cease. Here, here I want you to see the contrast between life and death. As a believer, we will undergo physical death. But that's just a moment in time. We only go into the grave to come out in glorified, resurrected bodies in order to live to God forever and eternally with no end in sight. So the life we have as a result of Jesus is eternal life. Now, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we will be resurrected and glorified, but right now my spirit has been raised to life. My body has not. My body's wasting away. Every time I say body, I think of little giants. <laughs> if you know what, what scene I'm referencing. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you don't know what, what uh, scene I was referencing, if you know little giants... Uh, that kid with the glasses goes for the, so the guys at the morgue can identify our bodies. Talking about getting crushed by the other team. You have to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Now, the question becomes, well, if I don't, am I not a believer? I don't believe he's saying that. But this is a call on a believer to choose to view themselves differently. This is for you guys who think you're still stained and polluted and corrupted by your own failures and mistakes, you're not. You have to consider yourselves, like it's, it's for your best interest. It's in your best interest to look at yourself in the mirror and go, I'm no longer the sin, the failures, the weaknesses, the mistakes of my past, of my present, or even my future. Not to say grace allows me to do whatever I want, but to say, look, 
I have died to sin. Spiritually, I'm no longer the old person I used to be. Now I also need to live differently. So the living to God here for Christ is actually the coming up from the grave. Now we, as a result, can look at ourselves as being alive to God. Okay? So that we can do the same. Let not, so the question becomes, what does it mean to consider yourselves dead to sin? Is that just to go, Lord, I am free from the penalty of sin. I think that's the starting point. I think what's mainly in mind here, if you go on to verse 12, is, hey, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. So the guys at the morgue can identify our bodies. That's why I contrasted the mortal body of sin with the old self. The old self is gone. What is still remaining is this mortal body with those old sinful tendencies still attached to it. But I am not my body, meaning I am not the product of what my body does. I am not the result of what my body does. I am, I am not my mistakes or my actions or my failures. What I am is who Christ has made me to be spiritually, which is disconnected right now from my body, even though I'm like, I'm piloting this body, but the true version of me is not this body. I'm going to have a glorified body and you'll have a glorified body when we're resurrected from the dead to match our new identity spiritually. So therefore, hey, don't let sin reign to make you obey its passions. What's the assumption? Your mortal body still has passions. Even though you died to sin, the penalty, the power, and even the influence of it, you can still choose to let sin reign in your mortal body. To let sin guide you to pilot your body and use it for sinful passions. But Paul is saying, hey, don't. Do not present your members to sin. So the members here and the passions of my members, I can either use this body and, 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 and honor God with it and submit myself to God and say, I'm presenting myself to you. Or the only other option is I can present my body to sin. And Paul's saying, since you died to sin, since you're no longer identified with your sin, since your sin has been paid for and was nailed to the cross, why would you live in what is no longer your reality? Why would you live in what is no longer your identity? Instead, take your body, even though it's mortal and it has passions that are contrary to the spirit, submit it to the Lord. You can. You have the ability. We're going to see this, this person, the believer, is contrasted with the person in Romans 7 who can't submit their members to God. All they can do is sin. And that's describing the life of the unbeliever. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So here's the whole considering yourself dead to sin. It's not just a mental ascent. It's, it's not just thinking differently. It's actually living differently. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. I reckon I'm dead to sin as those who have been brought from dead to life, from death to life. Since I, this isn't like, hey, if you think it, you are it. No, it's because I am alive in Christ, I should live like I am. But that starts with evaluating myself in a way where I see myself through God's eyes and not through the lens of what I used to be and used to do. So your members to God, I should present my members to God, my body, as instruments for righteousness and not to sin. Now in comes the free grace individual to go, hey, Paul is saying you should. He's saying don't let sin. He's saying don't obey its passions. He's saying consider. He's not saying you automatically will. 
He's not saying it's a guaranteed thing, so you can't make this absolute guaranteed evidence of true faith. Because then what you're saying is, is that this negates free will if God is making it happen, which the text doesn't say God's doing it. You have a choice to. That's typically the argument from the free grace individual is don't make this a requirement to validate faith. Otherwise, the people who aren't doing this, you're saying they don't have faith. What about this right here? Because in verse 13, walking in newness of life, which is what we saw in verse 4, okay, it is now described as bringing the body of sin to nothing, no longer being enslaved to sin, being set free from sin, considering myself dead to sin, not letting sin reign in my body, and not presenting my members to sin, but instead living as one who's spiritually alive in Christ. So the conclusion for Paul, okay, in verse 14, is that sin will not have dominion, mastery, or reign over you, the true you, the real you. Your body is not the realest you, you're just piloting it. Your consciousness piloting a mortal body that's fading. The real you is the immaterial aspect, the spiritually alive you in Christ through faith. You've been raised to life, a new creation free from sin and death. So. All verse 1 through 13 concludes in verse 14 by saying, for or because, here's why, sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law but under grace. Now the mastery that has been described so far isn't referring to the penalty. At least that's not what's mainly in mind. It, it doesn't mainly speak to uh, the punishment or the condemnation of sin, but the actual like power of sin in my life to dominate my decisions. Because of verse 1 through 13, now I can say, or Paul can say, sin will have no dominion over you because you're under grace, because you're secure, because you're righteous, because you have the power to live different now. Let's move on. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? No way. That's the opposite of what Paul is saying. Do, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? Now, is this obeying in a moment? Is this, hey, if I'm a believer right this minute, but I choose to lie, I choose to use my tongue for deception, and I disobey, and I present my tongue as a member to sin. Does that mean I'm now a slave to sin again, and I've reversed the regeneration process, and I've lost my salvation? No. The presenting yourselves is more, I believe, what we're going to see referring to the life of the individual, not a moment. And this is... I won't get into it yet, but when we get to 1 John 3, the big question becomes, what is the distinction? What is the dividing line between practicing and living in sin versus struggling with sin in a moment? What's the difference, biblically? Do you not know if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which does lead to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, I don't believe the obedience here is referring to, well, we'll see in verse 17 what the obedience is, okay? I believe this, this referring, this uh, presenting yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves 
is not in a moment, but a lifetime. Because of the way verse 17 comes in, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. So what's he saying? You believers I'm writing to are no longer slaves of sin. So who are the slaves of sin being described in verse 16? Can't be a believer. Because they have become obedient, which is right here, leads to righteousness, positional righteousness through Christ. Okay, You are righteous, right standing with the Father, because you are obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In other words, to the gospel. Believing the gospel is obeying the message of Christ. The synonymous. We talked about that in the first episode. To have faith is to believe. Is to consciously decide, I believe. I'm persuaded. I'm convinced. I trust in the Messiah. And neither of those are works-based activities I do. It's just all different ways of saying I believe. I believe. I believe. And when you believe... You're obeying the gospel, which leads to righteousness. You're presenting yourself as whether you are aware of it or not, you become a servant, the word translated in the English is slave. You become a servant to God instead of uh, a slave to the domineering master of sin and death. Okay, so verse 16 is not talking about a Christian who makes a mistake and all of a sudden you're a slave of sin again. It's talking about someone who doesn't believe. And the actually... The evidence of the unbelief seems to be that they present themselves continually to sin, which leads to the eternal death. I believe that's what it's in mind here, as opposed to believing the gospel and becoming righteous and having life. Was that a mouthful? Okay, so verse 18, having been set free from sin, right? You've become slaves of righteousness. And that's a good thing, by the way, because now... What you, are le- what you are leaning into, what you're letting lead your life, is going to be super beneficial to you. Believers are no longer uh, slaves of sin, period. We are set free from sin. And now we're slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Thank you, Lord, for showing me this. Help me clearly communicate this, Lord. As you... Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity. Now, what he's about to describe in verse 19 is the lifestyle of one who rejects the opportunity to become righteous through faith. In other words, the unbeliever is going to live the way verse 19 says. Which tells me what? Contrasted with the unbeliever, we're going to see the believer live different. It is, it is undeniable. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Just as you once, you once, meaning they, don't, they no longer do, you once presented your members as slaves to impurity. Meaning, watch this, even if I as a believer struggle with sin, fight sin, give in to sin, I'm not presenting myself as a slave to impurity because I can't change Uh, allegiance. I can't change my eternal loyalty. It lies with God once faith has been initiated by the grace of God. When I come to believe, what God sets into motion through that is an eternal, never-ending, guaranteed process of what I call, uh, what what scriptures calls glorification at the end. 
I'm speaking in human terms just as you once presented your members, as slaves to impurity, insinuating that they no longer do, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So the presenting of self here by obeying the gospel, right here, now makes way for us to take our body and go, you know what? I'm going to choose to submit to righteousness. And that's going to lead to sanctification. Here's the sanctification process of the believer who has obeyed the gospel, contrasted with the unbeliever who is living in unbelief, and they commit, they commit their bodies to continual impurity as slaves. Do you see the difference in lifestyle? He's not talking about a carnal believer here. And 1 Corinthians, I do believe, is addressing believers. I, I, yeah, I do believe they are addressing believers. But you can't take Romans 6 and go, well, they're contrasting a carnal believer versus a more mature one. He's contrasting unbelievers versus believers and the lifestyle that follows. What you do with this information, Lord help you. <laughs> when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Is this positional righteousness? or the living righteous, which is the sanctification process. What do you think? When you were slaves of sin, you were free, not in a good way. You were free from what you wanted. You were free in regard to righteousness. Watch, verse 21. I believe it's the lifestyle. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you're now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. So what they used to present themselves to, what we used to present ourselves to, what unbelievers still present their bodies to, is sin as a slave, which results in death because they're in unbelief. But now that you've been set free from sin, and you've become slaves of God, so you're not going to be a slave of sin while you're a slave of God. Do you see that? You don't belong to two masters. You don't have divided loyalty. It doesn't mean believers never struggle with sin and give in to sin. What I am saying is, as a slave, as a servant, whatever you're lo however you want to frame up loyalty, my loyalty lies with God, not my old life that was crucified with Christ. There doesn't seem to be wiggle room for being owned by two masters. And the lifestyle seems to be indicative of who a person belongs to. And if you don't see it yet, you will. I'm just letting you know up front, so far, the ground we've covered is that the lifestyle of a person, and we're going to get to the spirit. This is so crucial. The lifestyle of a person does testify of who their allegiance is to, who they belong to, who, their, who has mastery over their life. We've become slaves of God. Now the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. In other words, the, the road to what we call eternal life, never-ending, which we have now, has our name on it. It's present in us. Eternal life is knowing God and Christ Jesus. So we have eternal life, but there is a full realization of our eternal life we don't yet have. It's coming. And the journey to that is paved with what Paul says, the fruit of sanctification. Meaning, I don't believe there's a way to escape the reality that genuine faith, yes, guarantees glorification, yes, guarantees 
eternal life. Yes, guarantees resurrection, but it also, in between, guarantees some degree, some measure, some evidence of sanctification, which, by the way, happens by the Spirit because it's called fruit. Now, the wages of sin is death. Why bring that in? Have you ever wondered why? That sounds like, a, like such a randomly placed passage. You learned it in Awana. You learned it to get Awana bucks. You said it. You forgot it. It came up again when you were 18, and you're like, why does it sound familiar? Because you were six, and you memorized it just to get a Tootsie Pop. Remember that? The wages of sin is death. What does that have to do with what we've been talking about? Well, contrasted with what sin results in, what you earn by sinning, Eternal life is not something you earn, it's something Jesus earned. It's something Christ earned. It's something that's free to you. And so typically, to, to defend the free grace position, they're often caricatured as a cheap grace. And I've already mentioned this, but I think that's a, a really rude way of representing their view, calling them cheap grace. First of all, grace costs us nothing. So it's not cheap, it's not expensive. It costs us nothing, it's a free gift. But grace and the way that grace is dispensed to us, oh, it costs Jesus his life. So what you earn by sinning is death. And he says that's the end of the things they used to be enslaved to, which is impurity and lawlessness. And 1 John tells us sin is lawlessness. This is a life of sin. This is a life of unbelief. This is a life of lawlessness. You'll always see unbelief paired with a giving self over to whatever passions and desires and cravings the flesh has. In other words, sinful living is always paired with unbelief. There's no way to get around it. If that's the truth, then what does faith always get accompanied with? The wages of sin is death. That's why I said in the beginning, I believe verse 16 is talking about the presenting self, the being obedient slaves, as not a moment, but a lifestyle, a lifelong. And the end of that, the road that is paved by sin and marked by unbelief is death. But if you want eternal life, it's a free gift in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what Paul's about to do in chapter 7, and I, I understand chapter separations came later in history, but what Paul's about to do is he's about to pivot. And he's about to mention the law and he's going to defend the law while also addressing the fact that no one can fulfill it. So the law is good, it's holy, it's righteous, it's a blessing, it's a gift. But because of our sinful nature apart from Jesus, no one can meet the demands of the law. So the law can only condemn. The law can only declare punishment and point you to the one who can save you. So he's about to defend the law as it relates to the death we see in verse 23. Because the Jewish individual in the Roman congregation would stand up and go, what about all my adherence to the law? What about all the stuff I'm doing in obedience to the law? Right? Because you said death is what I earn from sinning. What do I earn from doing my best to obey the law of God? Well, he's about to address those questions. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. Okay, and there can be Gentiles, non-Jews, who are aware of what the law requires, for sure. But specifically, he is calling out the Israelite people who are going to trust in their law. For what? 
for what only God can give as a gift, which is eternal life in the Son. So, I'm speaking to those who know the law. Ready? Don't you know that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Now he's going to use an example. Look, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Okay, you're going to see the law, every time the law is mentioned, it doesn't necessarily mean law of Moses. It doesn't necessarily mean law of God. It can refer to how something works. It can refer to the contractual dimension of it. It can refer to how something operates. Okay, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Adulteress. Because you're violating a covenant and a law that you bound yourself to. You bound yourself to your spouse and vice versa. But if her husband dies, why is it the husband dying? She's free from that law. I think to note how the bride of Christ, you know, is now free from the need to work, to earn, or strive. She's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, so here's why I brought that example in, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Why? So that you may belong to another. Remember how now we can be slaves to God in righteousness? How does that logistically work? Well, because you died to your old master and that old life crucified with Jesus allows for you to become something new and belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Here again is the reason by which the regeneration process takes place. Why are you born again? Why are you a new creation? Why were you set free from your old master? Why do you belong to God now through faith? It's so that it's for the purpose of bearing fruit for God. If that's the purpose for which God does everything that he does through your faith, you work out the logical conclusion. While we were living in the flesh, I want you to think about that. While we were. Do you see it? While we were living in the flesh. What's the assumption? Well, I thought I still live in the flesh. No, no, no. You live in what Romans 6, 12 calls a mortal body. The death that occurred, your old self, okay, seems to be different than the mortal body. Where are we? While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So guess what? One lifestyle bears fruit that leads to death. Remember, what you reap is what you sow. One lifestyle, it seems, doesn't bear fruit in terms of earns righteousness or results in righteousness, but one who is righteous will bear fruit, will live a life, an overall lifestyle that is consistent with the eternal life they have and are going to fully realize in the end. So understand this, your sinful passions before you came to Christ in the flesh, you used to live in that, Ephesians 2, 
and, and, and those were aroused by the law. The law was not the problem. Your sinful passions capitalized on it. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. In other words, if you go all the way back to verse 4 of chapter 6, we were raised in order to walk in newness of life, right? Um, or, is my little niece yelling in the background. Another way he says it is, we died, or we belong now to him who was raised from the dead so that we can bear fruit for God. He says it a different way. We've died to that which held us captive, being the law, so that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit. Those are all the different ways of saying the same thing. Walking in newness of life, bearing fruit for God, which is sanctification, living or serving in the new way of the Spirit, John chapter 3 and 4, and not in the old way of the written code. Why? Why is that? Because if you go to Romans chapter 2, speaking of believing Gentiles, it talks about how the work of the law is written on the hearts. Okay? And if you go down, it says circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. In other words, God writes his laws on the hearts of his people. So that now the spirit of God guides my life, not to the neglect of the law, but now as a secure, born again, child of God, living in faith, belonging to Christ eternally, that there's a new way to function in relationship with the law. I'm not bound to it, trying to meet the demands to not die. I'm alive. And the spirit of God seems to testify of that new life we have. And that's why I asked the free grace individual, if you say you believe, you say you have new life, you say you have the spirit, what convinces you? What, what, what makes you think, as opposed to the unbeliever who is also convinced they're, they're good and there's no God, what makes you convinced that indeed the spirit of God indwells you? What causes you to think that? I'm not doubting, I'm just making you, like, I want to hear your reasoning. Okay, so verse 5 does say we were living in the flesh. In other words, we used to be identified with our old self. Our old sinful nature and our sinful passions used to identify us. And our lifestyle was a testimony of that. Believers now, in verse 6, serve in the new way of the Spirit. Not in the old way, where they, we were captive to the law, bound, enslaved through sinful passions and desires. Okay, so I want you to think about that. As we get to Ro the end of Romans 7, which typically people go, this is a believer struggling with sin. So far, we've seen two people contrasted. The one who is a slave to sin, unbelief, and the one who is a slave to God, believes. And they serve in the new way of the Spirit, contrasted with someone who can be dead in sin, unbelief, and serve in the old way of the written code. In other words, the person in mind here that's mainly being addressed is the Israelite person who looks to the law to save, who looks at their performance and their obedience and their, their ability to do what the law says as their salvation in life. He's addressing that person, right? What then shall we say? That the law is sin, okay? So now what's about to be explained is that the law is not the problem. Follow the train of thought. 
there's a new way to operate in the spirit. So does that mean the law is sinful since we serve in the new way of the spirit? No, no, no. No, no, no. If it had not been for the law, I wouldn't have known sin. In other words, the law exposes my sin. I wouldn't have known what it is to covet if the law didn't say, you shall not covet. That's how the law talks in my mind. But sin, here we have the real issue, sin. Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So now that I know what sin is, the sinful flesh within me, let's say hypothetically I'm outside of Christ before I came to, to know Jesus, sin inside of me went, ooh, a new opportunity to capitalize on the law. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I died. That's why a death has to occur, to reverse death. Now the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So you just said, Paul, that the law is not sinful, but now you say the law proves to be death? Here's why, okay? The problem is not the commandment or the law. The problem is sin inside of me takes advantage of the commandment and produces death through the commandment. Now sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. This is just a replay of Genesis 3. The serpent creeping up to the woman, did God really say? He capitalizes on the law. He knows that death will occur if they violate the law God gave, which was to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he deceives them, and through it, death comes. It killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So know that. No one's bashing the law, but Paul is framing up the law for the Israelite who is self-righteous, and trusts in their knowledge of the law, or trusts in their obedience to the law. And he's trying to frame it up for them properly, and go, look, the law is good. The law has its place. The law is holy. The law exposes sin. But that good law, sin capitalized on that to bring death to you. So in some sense, not only does sin have to be dealt with, but so does the law that declares you condemned. Both have to be dealt with. But sin is the real issue. The law is not. Sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might be sinful beyond measure. We know that the law is spiritual. So again, Paul is defending the law, right? But not making the law the way to be saved. We know the law is spiritual, but I am, here's where we transition, verse 14 through 25, usually becomes a believer who is struggling with sin. So far, all we've seen, right? And I'll, I'll give you a reason why I believe this person being identified in verse 14 through 25 is not a believer. But so far, what he's proving is this. The law is good, death comes through sin, and sin takes advantage of the law to bring death, right? So whatever example he's about to give in 14 through 25 is going to fit into both, it's going to prove those points. He's about to create the scenario where we know the law of spiritual, but I am of the flesh. But, so we have to remember, the law is good. 
death comes through sin. Sin brings death by taking advantage of the law, right? And all three have to be dealt with. Sin, death, and the law. Now, would it make more sense for Paul to use a person who is outside of those things? Or would he prove those points by using an individual who is bound by those things to explain why sin is bad, death is bad, and the law is good, but it doesn't help? Verse 14. We know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So he's created, again, the I here. He's saying, I am of the flesh. Whether this is a hypothetical I to fit with the audience, or this is Paul actually speaking to himself, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Here's the first reason I don't believe the I here being referred to is, an, is a believer. Because he already said in chapter 6, over and over and over, that we're set free from sin. We were slaves of sin, right? Um, we've been set free from sin. We were once slaves of sin. Um, sin will have no dominion over you. We died to sin. Death no longer has dominion over you. We died with Christ. And the body of sin is brought to nothing. So why would Paul turn around and use a believer as an example and explain that believer as being sold under sin? And you go, well, that's different than being enslaved to sin. Is it? Because to be sold, that's, that's mastery language. That's imprisonment language. That's being a slave to sin language, which a believer is not. In other words, a believer is not someone who is sold under sin. He also says, I am of the flesh. If you go down to chapter 8, verse 9, he'll tell the believers, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Because remember, what's being contrasted here is the old way of the written code, right here in chapter 7, verse 6, the old way of the written code versus the new way of the Spirit. So Paul's also going to magnify the new way of the Spirit, not by bringing down the law, but by showing the law is good. You just can't meet the law, and that's the issue. So we go down. The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Well, hold on. It almost sounds like the law is something that I can't fulfill or do because of the fact I'm not spiritual. But in chapter 8, verse 9, he tells the believers, you are of the Spirit. And in chapter 6, he did say, you are capable of actually resisting the sinful passions of the flesh and actually doing what the law commands. Not to fulfill it in place of Christ, but as a secure believer, I can do what the law requires in obedience to God now that I have the Spirit. So, so far in verse 14, there's no reason to think that this is a believer. Verse 15, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Now, now that's true of a lot of believers. So I'm not negating the fact that believers, those who are truly born again children of God, struggle with sin, fight sin, hate sin, still give into it. Give into sinful patterns and addictions and habits and and different seasons of even like, why is it mag why is it so prevalent right now? Why am I giving in so much? I'm not negating that. That is a real, real, genuine thing that happens. It's a reality for every believer. But the way he describes, I do not do what I want, sounds like he never does. But I do the very thing I hate. And you go, well, you're kind of reading into that a little bit. Paul will actually explain that and validate what I just said, that he never does what he wants, whoever the, the I is, whoever the he is. 
Now, if I do what I don't want, I agree with the law that it is good. So just in verse 15, this individual doesn't do what he wants, which is to obey the law. Like he wants to do what the law requires. The problem is he doesn't. Instead, he does what he hates. He hates the sin or violation of the law he commits. What I want you to see, and this might break your theological bubble a little bit, but, but walk with me, okay? Walk with me through the text. Is that we often think of unbelievers as having no desire to do any good. No desire. Well, think about the Jewish nation Jesus came to. He calls them a wicked generation, but they did want to do Torah. They did want to do what God commanded in some capacity. They knew what was right. They even had some kind of desire, some degree of desire to do it. But the actual ability to carry it out was not present. So unbelievers aren't people who don't want to do anything good. It's precisely sometimes the opposite. It's that they are so obsessed with doing good that in their own mind, they think they're good without the righteousness of Christ when in fact they fall painfully short of the standard of perfection. So there is a category of people, especially within Israel, of people that know the law is good and I want to do that. I'm just not capable of doing it, but I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So the person being described, as Paul is saying the I, he's saying this person is in the flesh. Um, I have the, because he describes the me as being identified with the flesh. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's very important, okay? Because this is what it means to be in the flesh, according to verse 18. He has the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to do it. Meaning when he looks at the law and goes, I want to do what is right. I just don't have the ability to do it. That flies in the face of what Paul has already said the believer has. You have the ability in the new way of the spirit, you can serve and you can do what God actually wants you to do. You can submit yourself to righteousness. You can do what leads to sanctification. You can present your members no longer as slaves to sin, but as slaves to righteousness, right? You can choose to do what is obedience, you know, based on coming from faith. Sin won't have dominion over you, right? You can, you can present yourselves to God. You, you can live to God. You can live all these different things. This flies in the face of what a believer can do. So, just according to verse 14 through 18, I don't see any reason to think this is a believer because believers have the ability not to fulfill the law on their own, but to actually do what God wants, which is found in the law. As someone who's fulfilled the law in Christ through faith, I, I do what God requires and wants me to from a place of security. And knowing that I'm good, knowing that I'm safe, knowing that I'm eternally his. So we have the ability by the spirit, which the unbeliever lacks. But the person being described here doesn't have the ability to do it. Now you might say, well, he's talking about carrying out the entirety of the law. It doesn't seem to be just the entirety of the law. That's a, that's a no-brainer. That's a no-brainer. What seems to be in mind here is just doing what the law prescribes in, in, in any real capacity. Because he, he just says, I, I do... I, do not do what I want. I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So, just to be clear, 
This is not a moment of a believer lapsing into sin. This is so far a person who doesn't have the ability to do what is right, even though they want to. They identify with their flesh. Um, uh, they believe the law is good. They're sold under sin. They're of the flesh. And they actually keep doing the evil they don't want. In other words, they agree that the evil they're doing is wrong. And there's some part of them that knows I don't want to be doing this, but I just keep doing it anyway. Sounds like zero self-control and zero spiritual ability to resist the flesh. Therefore, okay, this man keeps on doing the evil he doesn't want to do, presumably not often, uh, if even at all, the good he actually wants to do. Meaning, he keeps doing on the evil, keeps doing the evil, and the good he actually wants to do, he says, I don't do that. Presumably, at least not often, if at all. Now I'm going to show you why I don't think it's at all. Verse 20, now if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now remember, what's the whole argument? Sin takes advantage of the law to bring death into the life of a person. Death becomes our reality because the sinful flesh, the sinful nature, uh, capitalizes on the commandment and creates death, results in death. So, verse 21, so I find it to be a law, okay? Now, he's not talking about the law of God necessarily. He's talking about, I find it to be the way something works, the way something functions, the logistics behind it, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Hmm, sounds a lot like Cain. Remember, sin is crouching at the door, Cain. Its desire is to master you and control you. You gotta resist that thing. Don't let it. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So there's a law of sin. Yeah, actually in chapter 8, like a few verses from now, he's going to expand on that. The law of sin is going to be expanded to be the law of sin and death in verse 2. In other words, it's the way sin functions to bring death into the world. It's the way sin operates. The flesh takes advantage of the commandment, produces more sin so that I disobey the law. That brings death. That's the way sin, death, and the law function. That's the law of how those three things work together. You might say how sin takes advantage of the law to bring death. Okay, because remember, he's exposing the people who rest in trust in the law for righteousness. In fact, at the end of, uh, I believe it's chapter 10, he's going to talk about how the Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus, they're pursuing a righteousness on their own terms, apart from Jesus, by the law. When Paul's already said righteousness comes by Christ apart from the law. Okay, so you can be an unbeliever, dead in sin, not able to fulfill the law of God, even though you really want to do what the law requires. You're not leaning on Christ in faith. Might be some of, some of you. So verse 20 says sin dwells in him. Also, I forgot to mention that. Seems like he's still enslaved to the sinful nature. Okay, let's break this down. He says, I see in my members, remember the mortal body, 
another law waging war against what? The law of my mind. In other words, my body wants to do bad, my mind wants to do good. And I'm captive to the law of sin. We've already talked about how believers are set free from. Even if you call it the law of sin, we're set free from the law of sin and death, which incorporates the law. We're free from that. The whole chapter, chapter 6 is all about that. And Romans chapter 8 is about to expand on that even more. So I have no idea how this could be a believer who's captive to the law of sin. It doesn't say his members. It says makes me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So yes, sin is present within his mortal body, but he himself as a, as a person, as an image bearer of God, he is captive to the law of sin. That's not speaking of a believer, man. There's no way. There's no way. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me. He's looking for deliverance from this body of death. His body just wants to do wrong. Now, you might be thinking resurrection, it's coming. Yeah, I think that's also in mind. I think that's coming. Like ultimately, the glorified resurrected body will make it so that no more sinful desires. It's wonderful. I believe that's coming. That's what he's pointing to, especially as we look at Romans 8 and the promise of glorification. But the body of death, like I can be delivered from the power of the sin that stains my body. I can be free from that now. If you go back to chapter 6, he talks about how um, death, sin will no longer have dominion over you. That is to control or consume your life. That, is, that appears to be the assumed reality of anyone who has faith. Is that sin will no longer have mastery, dominion over you. So who will deliver me? This, this person seems to be looking for deliverance. And then when we get to chapter 8 verse 1, this seems to be the answer. Who will do it? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. He's not talking right here in verse 25 about the reality of a believer. Well, I'm just going to, I'm committed to, and it's only going to happen where I serve the, uh, the law of sin with my flesh, but I will agree with the law that it is good with my mind. Sounds like a really bummer reality for a believer, right? I'm just always going to give in to the flesh. Is that what he said in chapter 6? The reality for this man being described in verse 14 through 25 is that he serves the law of sin, which we've already seen believers are set free from. Remember, this is referring to the life of an individual. They are slaves of the one who they present themselves to, either sin that leads to death in unbelief or to God in faith, which leads to righteousness and sanctification. So... Um, the reality for this man is that he serves the law of sin with his mortal body, with the body he's been given. And it seems to be like every time, no way out. He says, I always do. I keep on doing the evil I don't want. I keep on. I keep on keeping on. Okay, so the law of sin is going to get expanded. Just to be clear, when you're like, he serves the law of sin, this is just a, a, a person, it could be Gentile or Jew, who agrees the law of God is good, and then they try and look to the law to bring righteousness, to save them. They look to their own performance and go, I can do that. And they neglect righteousness through faith in Jesus. They go, I don't need a Messiah. I have the law. That tells me how to get to God. No, that tells you that you can't. That shows you your inability. 
that exposes your sin and your need for him. And if you're going to keep looking to you and your ability and your rituals and your ceremonies and your keeping of the days and Sabbath and your dietary laws as a way for salvation and righteousness, you are sorely mistaken. But here's the reality for those in Christ. Chapter 8. I think this is actually a good chapter separation. I agree with this one. It has my approval. Because chapter 6, the whole time, chapter 6 and chapter 7 was contrasting the believer, the unbeliever, the the slave to righteousness, the slave to to, to sin and death. Um, The one who is in Christ, the one who is not. All these different ways, okay? And now, what we just described in verse 14 through 25 is an unbeliever. What we're about to see in chapter 8 is a believer. There is therefore now no condemnation, no penalty or punishment for sin. For who? Well, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life, or the the way the spirit has brought life, think of the law of gravity, the way gravity works, has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. So the law of sin this person still serves, a believer is free from, can't be a believer. In, in chapter 7, verse 25, doesn't make any sense. Doesn't even fit in with Paul's main arguments and the point he's making about the law being good, but you can't look to it to save. Doesn't, make, doesn't even make sense. Verse 3, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. Remember, the whole issue in chapter 7 is your flesh is weak. Your flesh can't do what the law demands. Your flesh, your body, you yourself can't meet the standard of perfection. You can't. Because your flesh takes advantage every time of what God says is good. And even though you know it's good and you want to do what's good and you delight in it, your flesh goes, no, no, no. And it's weakened by the flesh. So God steps in and he goes, guess what? Your flesh can't do it. You can't do it. No one can do it. My son can. But it says God has done by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. What has Jesus come to obliterate? Sin. He condemned sin. Just think human evil. He condemned human evil itself in the flesh of his own son. So God the Father stands. Sorry, the screen isn't changing. Um, I just noticed that this whole... uh, This is a bummer. This whole... sermon hung on the screen changing. Uh, I hope you have your Bibles open. It's the only way you'll get through this. Lord knows. Okay, let me fix this. Full screen. Split screen. I closed the chat too. Dang it. Let me try this. Please. Next time, Lord, let me know. The people need to see it. What did I do last time? Hold on. Lord, make it work. Still nothing. Hmm. Display capture. Window capture. Display capture. Please work. Ah. I'm going to pretend like you've been watching this whole time and you had an open Bible. For those of you that are going to watch this, you're going to have to watch it with an open Bible. Good. You get to read it yourself. 
God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So you didn't get to see everything I was saying. Hopefully you'll go back with an open Bible and follow along with me. If you're on TikTok, you're able to see it. In this instance, TikTok is better than YouTube. Cool. But it says, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us because of what Christ has done. And by the way, the us, believers, are those who walk not according to the flesh. And you might say, well, they're not trying to earn salvation by their own works and efforts. But according to the Spirit. I would say, it's this. Um, the new way of the Spirit. Not in the old way of the written code. And it's also what he talked about. In chapter 6, walking in newness of life. Gosh darn it, Bible app. Why didn't you scroll with me? I need you next time, man. Uh, Satan's a jerk. He doesn't want you guys to see this. It is what it is. Notice how the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. It doesn't say for us. Now, that's true. Like, practically, Jesus fulfilled the law for his people. But it does say in us. So we walk around not just as those who fulfill the law of God in Christ, but apparently in our lives, in our practical everyday activity and lifestyle, we are going to do what we see prescribed in the law by walking according to the Spirit. And not to be saved, not to stay saved, not, it's from a place of security. So that our evil isn't credited to us, but instead the good that we do as those who trust in Christ, that's credited to our account as being rewarded. So let me, let me show you what I mean. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Meaning, uh, the best way I can explain it is the word of God becomes visible through our life. The word of God takes a visible form in the way that we live. In that sense, the righteous requirement of the law to love God and love neighbor is fulfilled not just for us so that we're perfect, but in us, in our life. Romans 2.15, it says, They show that the work of the law, being, I believe, I've done an episode on this, Romans 2 is often understood as being unbelievers. I believe it's believers here. I've done a whole episode, why? You can go check it out, just search for Romans 2 and then this channel. They show that the work of the law, believing non-Jews, Gentiles, they show the work of the law is written on their hearts. They show that. Why? Because by nature, they do what the law requires. Not to be saved, not to stay saved, not in place of Christ, not to add to Christ, but from a place of having fulfilled the law in Jesus through faith, they go and do what God says to do, which is to love God and love neighbor. So they show by their life the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. So there's a double thing happening there. This is why I asked the free grace individual, how do you know that you have the Spirit of God? Part of the answer should be, and seems to be biblically, that what the Spirit does in our life should be consistent with what the law, the Word of God, requires. But it seems to be a visible thing, no, no matter what. What the law requires, being fulfilled in Christ through faith, amen, 
but now we go and do from a place of having fulfilled. So it's shown, it's written on their hearts. If, in other words, here's how the argument goes. A believer is someone who has the work of the law written on their hearts. That's a non-negotiable. That's literally part of the description of a believer is that Hebrews 8, Deuteronomy 30, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, the work of the law is written on the heart of a believer. That's who you are. You have God's law written there, okay? Now, that will either show and will testify to the fact that you have the spirit and the work of the law written on your heart, or it won't, which apparently bears witness to the fact that you possibly don't. Because by nature, these believers are doing what the law requires without even knowing or having some kind of, you know, knowledge of the law, the spirit leads them in that. And their conscience as well. So we have the, the, the work of the law being done in their, in their life, testifying to the law in their hearts. Then we have their conscience, the believer's conscience going, yeah, I'm accused or excused by what I'm doing by the fact that my conscience is aligned with the truth of God's word so I can know right from wrong. I can know good and evil, okay? There's all these different ways of saying, yes, a true born-again believer at some point seems to be someone whom the Spirit of God will outwork the law they've fulfilled through their life. Love God, love neighbor. And apparently those who are believers and have faith walk according to the Spirit. Now the question always becomes, well, at what point is it walking? What if I'm just sitting in the spirit? What if I'm only doing a little bit? What if every now and then I do what the spirit requires? What if, what if only like once a week I'll do what the spirit requires? Is that walking? Like what point is walking? What point is doing? What point is a lifestyle? What point is, and for me, when we get to 1 John 3, I, I'm gonna answer it the same way I am now. That I believe those are silly, I understand the heart behind it, it's like, well, someone can't truly know they have faith of the presence of God or are truly born again unless they have a clear standard they can visibly meet. Like, I am doing enough or I'm walking enough. That's not what we're saying. It, it's almost like people want to know how much do I have to do or how much can I get away with? Just give me a line so I can know I'm good. And I think scripture intentionally doesn't give us that line. I, here's my suspicion, okay? that the way the spirit works in a person's life and the way the unbeliever's deceptive heart works, you know, and we're gonna see this in, with all the scriptures referring to the spirit, you know you have the presence of the spirit. You know you're walking according to the spirit or, or not. Like you know that. Your conscience bears witness to it. The spirit bears witness to it. Uh, the word of God bears witness to that. You can know. So I don't think there's, there needs to be this amount or this degree or what's walking. You know what living is. No one needs to define that. Well, and, and we'll get to the, I've heard someone say, you know, telling people that a believer won't practice sin, but they'll struggle with moments of sin. That's like me saying, hey, I'm not a criminal. I just do crime every now and then. And I'll show you why that's a flawed parallel. It's not fully thought out. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. What promotes life and righteousness, sanctification. To set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't 
submit to God's law. Why? It cannot. That's part of my reasoning as to why the man in Romans 14 through 25 or 6, 7, 14 through 25 is not a believer. Because an unbeliever is described as not submitting to God's law. It can't. The mindset on the flesh, which is where they're at in unbelief. And that's how this man is described, how Paul's describing, I believe, himself before he came to Christ in faith. He delighted in the law. He was zealous for the law. He knew the law. He tried to do the law. But there was this, I can't do it all. I don't have the ability to carry out what I want. Those who are in the flesh can't please God. Do you notice how like being in the flesh is not a condition of life? Being in the flesh is a, it's a spiritual reality. I'm either in the flesh and that's my identity, that's my position, that's my reality, or I'm in the spirit as a believer. You might go, well, walking by the spirit, isn't that being in the spirit? No, me walking by the spirit doesn't change whether I'm in the spirit or not. That's my position in Christ. I'm in the spirit. So if, so if you're thinking, well, if, what if I give into sin? What if I choose not to walk by the spirit? That doesn't change your position and your eternal reality as being in the spirit, even though you're choosing to walk by the flesh. So lifestyle doesn't change my position in Christ, right? But my lifestyle does testify and bear witness to my position in Christ. Those two things can't be separated. Now, we're going to start talking about the presence of the Spirit. If you're on TikTok, join us on YouTube Live so you can be in the chat. There's far more, there's a lot more going on in the YouTube chat if you want to come join. I'm about to cut to commercial break anyway to get some water real fast. So if you're on TikTok, hang on a couple minutes. If you're on YouTube, watch the commercial. TikTok, go to YouTube so you can see the commercial. And I, uh, yeah. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338 uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly clearly, so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you 
are a new believer or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day pretty much. Uh, We're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Man, Uh, guys, I fumbled the ball today. I'm sorry. I didn't check to make sure the screen was scrolling. And I was doing that consistently last week. And of course, the one time I don't do it, the enemy's like, suck it. No, you suck it, Satan. Truth's getting across whether you like it or not. Romans 8. It says, you, however, are not in the flesh. So guess what? Believers, it doesn't mean you don't struggle with the flesh. doesn't mean you don't fight the flesh. doesn't even mean you don't give in to the flesh. But you're not in the flesh. Well, I have a mortal body, but that's not the you that God sees. You're in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Okay? Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So, watch this. To have the spirit of God guarantees you belong to him. To not have the spirit of God guarantees you do not. You cannot. It's an impossibility. You can't belong to God without his spirit dwelling in you. At least when it comes to the new covenant. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The spirit is life because of righteousness. Amen. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life, will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, which he does, then he who raised Jesus from the dead seems to be the life that's being given here to the mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. Seems to be the the spiritual life. Where the spirit is, there's life. Meaning the spiritual life that comes as a result of believing. My spirit was dead and now it's alive. Now I'm alive. I'm truly alive in Christ. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Think about that. Remember the whole slave concept that you didn't see in Romans 6 because it wasn't scrolling? Oh my gosh, that's so frustrating. Debtors, right, who you are in servitude uh, to, who you're in service to as a slave, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now watch. You go, well, this is self-righteousness. Well, hold on. If by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body. What deeds have been described thus far in Romans 6 and 7? The sinful passions. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's pretty much what he said right here. So in other words, I'm trying to think of saying this in a nice way without people getting offended, which I can't cover all my bases. It seems to be Someone who is filled with the Spirit 
is someone who will walk according to the Spirit. Perfectly? No. All the time? No. But they will walk according to the Spirit. Someone who has the Spirit dwelling in them is someone who is led by the Spirit. All the time? No. Perfectly? No. But he does say all who are led by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body are sons of God. Now this can be, uh, you could even qualify this by like one moment. If you see one moment of the Spirit of God leading your life, if you see one moment of the Spirit of God producing fruit in your life, is that enough? Why not? The point is the Spirit of God will bear fruit, will make it evident He's present in your life. And part of that is by the Spirit, you as a person have the free will choice to put to death the deeds of the body. That's something you choose to do. Just like being led by the Spirit, that's something you choose to do. So when I say these things always follow faith and the indwelling of the Spirit, I'm not saying that God programs you robotically to do these things against your will, but there is a reformatting of the very nature of your, of your DNA and your heart and your desires and all of that, so God works through your free will in participation um, to be led by His Spirit. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption. Some of you need to know that. You have no reason to fall back into this fear mentality of maybe God doesn't, maybe I'll be punished, maybe I should be afraid of hell, maybe I won't make it to heaven. Stop it. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. So he's talking to people who know, and he knows, they have the spirit of adoption, which guarantees what? Their eternal life, which, which is witness to what? Their faith. Now, by the spirit of God, we cry, Abba, Father. It's by the spirit of adoption. In other words, it's in union with the Spirit. It's even like led by Him. That He leads us to cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with what? With our spirit. Sounds like Romans chapter 2. When those who have the law written on their hearts, the work of the law written on their hearts, they're showing, right? They're doing what the law requires by nature while their conscience bears witness, which sounds like their spirit bears witness to that. There's that dual fold witness where it's like my conscience is clear, but also I see evidence of the spirit which validates what my conscience is saying. Right, because you can, you can have a seared conscience, right? Not as an, a believer, but you can have a, a, a messed up conscience that get flips right and wrong and, and good and evil and leads you to do things you think are good, but they're evil. You can have a messed up conscience. Your conscience isn't perfect. Your conscience needs to be cleaned and washed and renewed. And now that we have a clean conscience, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit, presumably, if you go to chapter two, through the, the, the works of the law that are happening in our life, and I'm doing it, not perfectly, but I'm doing it, right? People always want some, some quant, quantifiable measure, right? Where it's like, just tell me how much though is doing it. How, tell me how much is walking. I don't think scripture gives us that on purpose. I, I wish I could tell you, oh, if this many days, the, the point is that you just look to him and not, I think if you had a standard, it would fall back onto you to validate yourself. I think if there, if there was like, well, how do I know I'm, I'm walking and, and not just sitting and not just crawling? I wanna know I'm walking by the spirit and doing and, and I wanna know my overall life is submitted to him. I think if there was a, a kind of measurement you could look at, well then you'd meet that criteria and then like what, go and do whatever? Or you'd meet that criteria and be prideful and arrogant and self-righteous. Or you'd meet that criteria and look at you instead of him. I think the point is that this would be a lifelong experience. 
And part of the, the way the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, which assumes what? The Spirit will affirm. The Spirit will confirm and assure us and bear witness we are God's children. How does that, that necessitates a way by which he does that. It can't just be this ethereal, like, I just feel the sense and the, the energy. There has to be a way the Spirit does that. And I would say one of the first things we've seen in Romans 2 is that the believing Gentiles who don't even know the law do what the law prescribes as the Spirit leads, right? They're showing the, that the work of the law is written on their hearts. That's one witness. And then the other witness is that their conscience, uh, you know, by the conviction of sin or by the desire to do good, their conscience bears witness to that as well. So it can't just be conscience. There has to be a twofold witness, right? Something is established on the basis of what? Two or three witnesses. And so that's why Jesus will say, look, I'm one witness. My father's the witness. Look at the signs I'm doing. This is another witness. So look, yeah, the spirit bears witness with our spirit. That means your spirit can be sure, but the spirit will validate that surety, that certainty. Because we've all been, we've all had moments where we were convinced of the wrong thing, right? Or we were deceived into believing something that was wrong, or we believed we were convinced of something we were truly not convinced of. There was a false convincing, a false, uh, there was a deception there. And so just because you're convinced of something doesn't mean it's actual. There has to be witness to that being convinced. And the Spirit plays a role in that. We are children of God. And I think if the Spirit of God wants to, if God is going to indwell a person, it's, it's, it's my suspicion that he'll make himself very, very clearly known. You won't be wondering, like, are you there, God? I don't know. You're the God of the universe, all power and wisdom and authority. And you know, I don't know if you're really here. You'll know, man. You'll know. And so the, the cool thing is you can know your children of God. And if children, you can know that you're heirs of God. And what follows that is, well, we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And I think the suffering in mind here is not being persecuted, being hated, that, that might be involved, but it's the killing of the flesh. It's the resisting the tendencies of the flesh by the Spirit of God and putting to death the deeds of the body in verse 13. That's a form of suffering. You forget that. Like you're, you're suffering for the glory of God and for your faith by choosing not to do what your flesh wants. That's a form of suffering. And apparently the road to glorification is paved with that kind of resisting of the flesh. It's not like I resist the flesh to get the glorification. It's like, well, the whole way there, that's just what it's going to look like. It's going to involve that. And then he'll go on to talk about the glory that's going to be revealed to us and who will be revealed as children of God and, and the freedom of the glory of, of, of the children of God and how uh, we'll have the redemption of our bodies. We're eagerly waiting for that full adoption to be realized Right? Not officially, legally declared, but we're waiting for the, the, the witness to our inward reality of sonship. That glorified body is coming. Right? So we're waiting for it with patience. And the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He helps us by interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. Right? And we know that God works all things together for those whom He has called. So go read the rest of Romans 8 on your own. What I want to do now... Is, is, is explain this. Here's, here's the reason I'm doing this. 
Here's the reason I started with Romans 6. So you understand that the, the person in Romans 6 contrasts, contrasted with the unbeliever. We have believer and unbeliever in Romans 6. In Romans 7, we seem to have a, an unbeliever who looks to the law. And then Romans 8, we see a believer. Notice how there is a kind of lifestyle attached to both. That is inescapable, okay? And the presence of the Spirit validating our sonship, validating our faith. Because you can say, I believe. What has you convinced? I think a lot of us are, and I'm not, this is not me going, I don't know if you're saved. I'm saying how, I'm just asking you to think through, how have I come to a place where I'm sure I believe? Like what has convinced me of that? Is it this? Is it this? Is it just because God said and therefore I am? Well, just because God said it doesn't mean you actually believe it. So how do you know you believe? Well, God's word is true. I take him at his word. How do you know you take him at his word? Because I have a spirit. How do you know you have a spirit? So if, again, if God's going to dwell with his people, I think he intends to make himself known. And so the evidence of faith is absolutely the spirit of God. There, in, in my opinion, when I, when I read about how this, you're about to see how the spirit works, what the spirit does, why he's given. And when we bring this all together, it's like, yeah, I think if God biblically, not even I think, I'm sure when God gives his spirit to someone, there will be a witness that the spirit is, 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 is bearing, he's bearing witness to the faith we have, to know he's there, to know we're his, to know we've truly believed. He gives us assurance of our sonship and our standing with God, okay? But when I ask an individual, like a free grace individual, how do you know you have the spirit? There's no way to validate or measure that truth claim where they go, I have the spirit or I do believe. If you can't measure a truth claim with any kind of evidence, you can't quantify that, I think there's an issue. Now you might go, why? And I'd say, because anyone can say anything. Anyone can say they're convinced of anything. Anyone can deceive, can be deceived. They've come to believe something, all these different things, okay? The heart is deceptive. The unbelieving heart is deceptive. And so I'm just saying, if there's no way to, to measure the evidence and the presence of the Spirit of God, um, how do you know your measurement is reliable? Because you say, I'm, I'm sure, I believe, I'm certain. Why is your subjective measurement um, reliable? Just my question. So know this, the Spirit is given the very second you believe, the very second you believe. Uh, Ephesians 1.13, it says, in him, when you heard the truth of the gospel and believed, you were sealed. And so someone says, it is something that you feel. The only problem with that is my feelings aren't a good compass for my life. My feelings aren't always my true north. My feelings are unreliable. My feelings change. My feelings go up and down. My feelings aren't always consistent with truth and reality. And so if you're saying, well, I feel, and you're quantifying that feeling in a subjective way, then I... I'm not going to convince you out of that. I would just say biblically that seems insufficient because I can feel anything. If you just say it's something you feel, I think there's an issue. But if you go, well, it's something I feel, and then there's boom, 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 and to confirm that feeling, I think there has to be confirmation to a feeling I have. Okay, so Ephesians 1.13, the very second, the microsecond of faith, you believe, boom, Spirit of God indwells you. Good news for all of us. Why? Because he's the guarantee of our inheritance, which is what Romans 8 was pointing to. 
Romans 8 was pointing to the full realization of our inheritance in Christ. Redemption, glorification, reigning with him, sonship, real, being revealed to the world. All that is part of the inheritance. And the Spirit guarantees that until we get it. Okay? Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Okay, I'm just going to kind of zoom through these. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Xenon. Galatians 3, 1 through 6. Galatians, who bewitched you? Right? Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Think it's obvious? Are you foolish? <laughs> are, you that, are you that silly? You started by the Spirit, now you're being perfected by the flesh? And that's, that's the, that's the tightrope we're walking when we say faith has evidence, faith has fruit, faith has this. We're not saying look to you, look at you, centered around you, look for this. We're just saying enjoy God and let Him go to work, man. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Right? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles do by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Look, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Same with the Spirit. Same with the Spirit, man. John 3, 34. Guess what God does? God has sent, uh, for he whom God has sent, Jesus, utters the words of God. Guess what? He gives the Spirit without measure without measure. The limitless Spirit of God indwells a finite, fallible, restricted human being like me. I think that's part of the reason you're recreated and given a new nature so that you can actually, I would say, uh, in an indwelling sense, handle that. Second thing you need to know about the Spirit is you can know you have the Spirit. It's not just like, the very second I believe, I have the Spirit. So are you convinced you have the Spirit because you're convinced you believe the Gospel? Or do you know you've believed the Gospel because you see the evidence of God's Spirit? I lean more towards the second. It's like the, the faith I claim to have, I'm convinced I have, is confirmed by the presence of the Spirit in my life. How does He confirm that? 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it says, look, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So I can know that I have fellowship with the Spirit. It seems to be a real thing. Uh, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Paul seems certain. And he's going, either you should be certain and you're not, or you are certain and you've forgotten. You're God's temple. You're holy. Because God's Spirit dwells in you. So you can know that God's Spirit dwells in you. We're not even getting into like how I know. Just the fact that you can know and you should know. You should know you have the Spirit of God. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, that's Christ, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son the spirit of adoption into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So in Romans 8, it's we cry, Abba, Father, by the Spirit. In Galatians 4, it's the Spirit of God inside of us testifying, crying out, Abba, Father. So you can know you have the Spirit of God. Isn't that good news? So we're not like in the dark, we're not wondering, we're not like, I'm not unsure, am I saved? First John 3, by this we shall know we're of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Can you know you're of the truth and have right standing with God? Yeah. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. 
He knows everything. So guess what? It is expected that your, however you qualify this, some part of you will try and condemn you. When Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, God speaks a better word. He's more true than your heart and your feelings. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe. Believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this, by this commandment keeping, by this believing, by this loving that's rooted in belief, by this, we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he's given us. So it seems like part of the spirit testifying to our faith and convincing us and convincing us that we are legit children of God, part of the way the Spirit of God validates us as His own is through the way we see love bearing, uh, being produced in our life for God and for people because we've believed. Also, what you believe matters. First John 4 says, hey, let's love one another because love is from God. You're going to see this theme of love all throughout John's Gospel and his writings. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Knows God. So if you know him, who is love, then you should expect to love the way he does. Anyone who does not love doesn't know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. That we might live through him. God is offering life through his son. Look, in this is love, not that we love God. He loved us before we ever chose to love him, and he sent his son to be the payment for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, then we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, right? But if we love one another, God abides in us. Is it that I love people to have God abide in me, or that my love for God and people is proof that God abides in me? I would say the second. His love is perfected in us. By this, we know we abide in him and he in us. How? Because he's given us of his spirit. And the spirit of God, again, linked to our loving of God and the brothers and sisters in our family. Ah, that was relieving. 1 John 5, 10 through 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God born has borne concerning his Son. So there's a testimony that comes into a person that believes. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life, it's in his Son. So there is a testimony within us that sounds like the Spirit of God actually bearing witness to the fact that we indeed belong to God. 1 John 5, 19 through 21, it says, We know that we're from God. Can we know that we belong to God and have His Spirit? Yes. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And we know the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and in his Son, Jesus. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So yeah, you can know you have the Spirit. And Ephesians 4.30, 1 Corinthians 1.22, and 2 Corinthians 5.5 tell us the Spirit of God is the guarantee of our inheritance, of our redemption, of our full glorification, of all that. Here's some of what the Spirit does in our life. Jesus does tell the apostles, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. First John tells us, you have no need that anyone should teach you because you have the anointing within you to teach you. So you might say, this is just Jesus talking to the apostles. And yet John, the apostle, will make this statement applied to all believers. He'll bring to your remembrance all that I give you, all that I've said to you. So part of the Spirit's role is to remind us of the truth and teach us of the truth. Of course, that might be a different way than the apostles had because they saw Jesus, they heard him. So the Spirit brings to mind everything they forgot. For us, it might be us reading the word of God and throughout our day in our life, the Spirit of God brings those things to mind. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's why I believe in 1 John chapter 5, um, the testimony within the people of God is the Spirit. He is bearing witness of Jesus. He's bearing witness. He's convincing us even more so. John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll declare to you the things that come, that are to come. He will glorify me, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's cool. So the Spirit of God has a teaching, guiding role into the truth, and it glorifies God. So, here's some clear markers of the Spirit being evident in a person's life. They're guided into the truth. How do you qualify that? They're taught the truth. They come to know the truth. The Spirit bears witness of Christ. The Spirit glorifies Jesus in their own mind and in their own life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, it says, This is the will of God, your sanctification. And don't think this is without the Spirit in verse 7, who gives His Spirit to you. You abstain from sexual immorality. Each one of you should know how to control his own body. Doesn't mean you will, doesn't mean you will right? Well, it says you should. You should know how to control your body. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. It's interesting that that's a dividing line between believer and unbeliever. Gentiles who don't know God, they live in the passion of their flesh. So what's the assumption? What's the assumption? Believers who do know God will not live in the what? No one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, and we warned you, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Remember the whole sanctification? This is the will of God. Holiness, living different, not you know, giving our members up to impurity. Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, 
but God who what? Who gives his spirit to you. For the sake of what? Brotherly love in verse 9. For the sake of holiness in verse 7. For the sake of sanctification and resisting sin and controlling our bodies and not living in lust and all the sin. Jesus calls us and enables us and empowers us to live different. So the question becomes, well, is that a guaranteed expectation? Is that, is that a, a requirement? Is that a requirement? Now I'd say absolutely 100%. I don't think you can say it's a requirement. But I would say that it seems to be, well, this is where people go, well, if it's guaranteed, now it's a requirement. Why is that? A requirement means you need to. A guarantee means God will, right? So no, they're not the same. Well, if you don't, then you're saying you're not saved. I don't, I don't know what you're saying, actually, at that point. I can't definitively see anything. All I can say is that when the Spirit is given, what seems to be a mark of that is sanctification, is some degree of holiness in the life. That's why he gives the Spirit. That's why love for people and God is so connected to the Spirit within you. So I wouldn't necessarily say, well, I don't see love, I don't see you, therefore you're not a believer. I would just say, hey, let me remind you of the gospel. Let me, let me remind you of what the truth is. For me, whether you're a believer, whether you're an unbeliever, whether you're a self-deceived unbeliever, the, the, the approach is always the same for me. Let's, let me remind you of the gospel. Let me remind you of the gospel. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. So remember how Galatians 4, Romans 8, the Spirit of God testifies and cries out, Abba, Father. We cry out, Abba, Father, by the Spirit of God. Same idea. The Spirit of God seems to lead our worship. Spirit of God seems to guide our worship. And we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When, when the Spirit of God fills a person, um, or when, when you're following the Spirit and you're leading, or you're, you're, you're walking in step with the Spirit, there will be none, none, of this, none of this, I'm putting confidence in my flesh, in my ability, in my stuff, in what I can do, in my performance, in my obedience, none of that. The Spirit of God keeps your eyes on God and causes you to worship and magnify Him even as things are happening in your life. And there is good fruit. There are good works happening. There is transformation. There is sanctification. You're not looking at that and going, ah, yes, evidence, proof, witness. You're going, look at him. He's good. He, look at what he's doing. Look how good he is as he's doing these things. He's still awesome. Your eyes are on him. There's such a difference. There's such a difference between the person who, who is focused on their good works as evidence of faith. I just need to confirm. I need to validate. I need to make sure... And the person who's just enjoying God naturally bearing fruit by the grace of God in them. And God is doing that in partnership with their free will as they look at him. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. All the spiritual gifts, okay? We can say that the Spirit of God gives and distributes gifts according to his will, right? According to his will. Uh, it's right here. He apportions to each one as he wills. In one spirit, we're all baptized into one body and we're, we may, we're made to drink of one spirit. So the spirit of God gives gifts. Gives gifts. Every believer has gifts to use. Doesn't mean they will use them. Doesn't mean they'll develop them. Doesn't mean they'll do anything with them. But they're there. You should work it. 1 Corinthians 14, 12, the gifts of the spirit are actually the manifestations of the spirit. 
to actually build up the church. Now here's also part of the way the Spirit of God works in sanctification. Ephesians 2.22, in him you also are being built together. This is a collective transformation, a collective growth into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So who's doing the building? Is it you? Who's doing the growing? Is it you? Who's doing the transforming? Who's making it happen? Seems to be by the Spirit of God in you. When you start taking credit for the transformation God's doing in your life, when you start assuming all the glory and the credit for the growth and the, and the, and the, the, the building you're seeing in your life, there's a problem. You're leaning on you. And he's still doing it, but you're taking credit for it. Which doesn't change the fact that he did it, but you're responding wrong. The Spirit of God is the one who does the building collectively of the people of God. Now, 2 Corinthians 3.18 might be one of the most convincing passages about, hey, the Spirit of God does guarantee in some capacity, to some degree, sanctification. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, look, we all with unveiled face, instead of Moses, you know, walking around the Israelites with a veiled face, we're beholding the glory of God. And we are being transformed. It doesn't say some are. It doesn't say most are. It doesn't say those who really work it. It doesn't say those who put effort and are, and are really, really investing into their relationship with God. It says we all, every believer, is being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now you go, well, this is us now eventually being glorified and resurrected and attaining the full redemption of our bodies. That glorification is coming. What's in between though? It says we are being. Well, God's working behind the scenes and he's, he knows it's going to happen. We are currently. It's, a, it's an active thing. Well, it's passively happening to us, but it's actively happening. We are being transformed, which assumes believers what? This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Believers are those who have the Spirit. And the Spirit seems to guarantee that some degree of transformation as we behold the glory of the Lord happens for every believer. Every believer will in some capacity behold the glory of Christ in his people, in creation, in his word, in their life, in their quiet time. There's a degree of God is revealing himself to his people. There's no, it has to be this much. There's no bare minimum. And we are being transformed by the Spirit. This comes from the Spirit. This comes from the Spirit. And you go, why? Well, Paul talks about how the outer man is wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed day by day. That's like a guarantee. Well, you go, oh, this is God transforming me without my free will or apart from my free will. Remember we talked about there are some things God intends to do, whether you're conscious of it or not, whether you participate or not, there are some things he will do. He'll glorify us. He'll resurrect us. He'll guarantee we reach the end, that kind of thing. But there are some things God has decided, I will only do that if you partner with me and actually use your free will to join me. And if you don't, then you miss it. Thanks for coming, Blake, on TikTok. 
John 3, 6 says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's why Romans 6, 7, and 8 will say, yeah, we're not of the flesh. We're actually spirit. That's why you have to be born of the spirit. You become something different. In Galatians 5, 16 through 25, Ephesians 4, 30, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, it all talks about our participation with the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophecies. Stay away from evil. Don't quench the spirit, you know, because God has given the spirit of God to you for holiness. Or Galatians 5, walk by the spirit. Keep in step by the spirit. These are things we actively choose to do. And they're not guaranteed to happen. I don't believe like they're, here's, here's, let me retract that, okay? For those of you that are going to soundbite that and go, he contradicted himself. I would say us always walking by the spirit or us always not quenching the spirit is not a guaranteed definitive thing. But what I do believe is guaranteed by the grace of God through the faith we have in him and what he's initiated is that there will be at some point in your life, in some degree, in some capacity, you will choose not to quench the spirit. You will choose to walk by the spirit and keep in step with the spirit and submit to the spirit and do what is referred to as not quenching the spirit. You will do those things. I believe that's guaranteed, but there is still the, I'm not guaranteed to do it uh, all the time perfectly. It's just a certain amount that I believe will happen eventually. And I think if we put any kind of restrictive measurement on that, we get kind of weird. So it is a free will decision to choose to walk by the Spirit of God. I'm not saying uh, that just because it's guaranteed means it's a violation of your free will. You still choose, you still partner, you still you know hang on to God. And guess what? That at some point in your life happening is guaranteed by nature of faith and what it is. Faith will produce that. Not to the neglect of your free will, not to the violation of it, but it will happen. Yeah, but if you're like someone who's like actively looking for these things because you're not secure, that's where this gets really weird. And I, and I understand why people push back against this because they think the only logical conclusion or the only reasonable response is to now that these things happen as a result of faith and they're guaranteed and they will happen, now I have to spend my life looking for it to make sure I really believe. I don't think God says to spend your life looking for evidence uh, that you're really his. I think he just says, look at me. And even if in this moment, as I'm looking at him, I don't belong to him, as I continue doing it, as I continue looking at him, I think eventually faith will arise. A person who doesn't currently believe and they're in the in-between. I've, I've talked to people like that. Where they're like, I, I've done these things and I, I think I know the gospel and, I've, and, and I, I'm looking for the evidence. I'm hey, ooh. the Christian life is not one of looking for evidence that I believe. It's taking God at his word and then moving forward enjoying him. So my solution to you is always the same. Whether you're a believer or you're an unbeliever or you're an unbeliever that's deceived, enjoy him. Invest into him. Like, just look at him. Just grow your relationship with God. And at some point, I believe faith, if not already present, will arise. Where you're like, I get the gospel. That happened to me. That happened to me. I can't definitively say I, I truly didn't belong to God prior to this moment, but there was a moment where I was worshiping God. I was doing 
what I thought a believer did, and I thought I was a believer while I was doing it, and I'm not saying I wasn't for sure one, but I still get the sense that I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I understood the gospel until this moment. And I was worshiping and praising, and something happened where I just got the sense that I don't know you. I don't know and understand the gospel. I don't even, I know of it, and I say I believe in it, but I don't even understand what I believe. I don't even know how you relate to my sin. I don't even know what you've done. And it was in that moment that I came to understand. And something clicked. And it was like true faith seemed to arise. And that might happen for some of you. We were like, so, so what do I know? do? Just live in the in-between? No, God says you can know you belong to him. God says you can know you have a spirit. God says you can know you have eternal life. So move forward and enjoy him and love him as someone who's secure and believes. What if I don't know if my faith is, there's enough witness in? I'm, I'm looking, I don't see the things you're saying. That doesn't negate the fact that I wouldn't say that definitely means you don't believe. So there's, there's a tight, that's why I said this, this whole conversation is such a tightrope walk. Because when I tell you all the evidence of faith and what faith results in and what faith always produces, people get frustrated because they think I'm telling them what they need to do to validate faith. I'm just saying what will happen by the grace of God. And I'm going to keep saying that over and over to, to keep your eyes off you. The minute you keep your eye, put your eyes on you and your ability, you've, you've screwed yourself over. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. So you can know uh, that you have a degree of participation in the Spirit, which goes back to my original point. Hey, you can know you have the Spirit. It's not a subjective feeling. It's not some uh, self-decided measurement where I go, I think I will know. God says, you can know you have my spirit. You can know that you believe by, I believe what, I, what the spirit does in a life. He comforts, he convicts, he teaches, he guides, he strengthens, um, he edifies, he encourages, he protects, he clarifies, he reminds, um, all these different things. He produces fruit in your life, all these different things. And so I do believe that those things will be a part of, at some point, the life of someone who has like legitimate faith. We're gonna end on 1 John 3, because this is ultimately where it's headed. Ultimately, this is where it's headed. Let's go to 1 John 3 and then we're done. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read it. We're going to talk about what people say against it. And then we're going to talk about how that doesn't change the fact that it says that. <laughs> it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. Right? Does, does John sound unsure? No. It also doesn't seem like he's looking for evidence in his life and enough witness to really know just the Spirit of God bears witness. His conscience bears witness. He's sure. Yeah, we're children of God. We are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it doesn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. Can you be sure you're a child of God? Yeah. Do you need to spend your life looking for fruit, being fruit inspectors? No. Even though faith will produce guaranteed something Scripture says, it doesn't mean you should spend your life actively looking for it, trusting in that instead of looking to Him. 
What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Verse 3 tells us that hoping in Jesus results in purifying oneself since he is pure and my hope is in the one who is pure. They say you become what you behold, right? And so this is talking of lifestyle. Because I've hoped in him and I have faith and I'm positionally in Christ, now my life will be one that is progressively conforming into his image, which is I am purifying myself as he is pure. This is the appropriate lifestyle of hope that God has called his children to. The word purify here in the Greek means to cleanse from moral defilement, to be purified, to be washed. And what's interesting is there's this whole discussion around 1 John 3 of, hey, is this saying a true believer will never sin or a true believer won't live in sin? And if there is even a difference, how do we differentiate? What's a lifestyle of sin versus a moment of sin? I don't, I'm not a criminal. I just commit crime every now and then. That's a silly parallel because of the fact that to be a criminal is to be defined and, and identified with your mistake and your sin. Whereas in Christ, you are no longer defined or identified with that. You're defined by his righteousness. You're identified with his work and who he is. So even when you struggle with sin and, and, and give in to sin at times, you're, no longer, you're not identified with that. Whereas a criminal is identified outside of Christ, unbeliever, that guy, he's identified with his sin. So it's just a, a silly parallel because the world doesn't operate the way God does. The world doesn't function and see the way God does. And so when you talk about, well, the min- you committed a crime, you're going to prison, um, that person's identified with and being punished for their crime, whereas in, in the believer's life, even when I struggle with sin, I'm not being punished or condemned for it. Christ took that upon himself. So uh, there's a conversation around like, is this sinning once? Is this sinning as a lifestyle? And I believe it's a lifestyle to be consistent with Romans 6 through 8. The verb tense of hoping here, whoever hopes in him, to be grammatically consistent, it has to be the same verb tense as the purifying. The hoping and the purifying. Because the purifying is a direct result or a proof of the fact that you are hoping. So, where one stops, the other one must stop as well. So, are we speaking of a moment of hoping? Or are we speaking of a lifelong hoping? If it's a lifetime of hoping, then it must also follow that that lifetime of hoping in is going to result a lifetime of progressive purifying and becoming more like Christ which I think is, more, is most consistent. Like, I believe in a moment, but as we've already described faith, faith, hoping in Christ, trusting in Him, looking to Him, however you want to explain that. Though it happens in a moment, it will last for a lifetime, in eternity. The reason this matters is because the purifying of one's life in obedience as a child of God is about to be contrasted with the impure sinning of someone who is not a child of God. Okay, so know that. He's about to contrast two individuals. We will be like him, right? We are children now. The love of the Father has been poured out onto us, right? We have his spirit. We hope in him and we purify ourselves as he is pure. Now, verse 4. 
everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Is he accusing his audience of practicing sin? No. Because the typical free grace stance will say, you understand 1 John is written to believers, right? You're so silly for thinking he's talking about unbelievers. I, I can't write to believers and talk about unbelievers and make statements about unbelievers. I have to, in order for that to happen, I have to be accusing my audience of being unbelievers. That's silly. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Guess what sin is? Lawlessness. Okay? So sin here is explained as lawlessness. To sin is to live without the law or outside the law. John explained what sin is. It is to violate or transgress the law. So I will say this. There are moments where I choose not to do what is right. In that sense, I'm violating the law of God. Have I reversed what Christ has done for me? Have I changed? Have I changed what Christ has promised about me and what he's done in my life and the fact that I'm righteous? No, no. So we're not saying believers will not fight sin, struggle with sin, give in to sin, even struggle with remembering to repent of sin, whatever you want to call it. But as you're going to see, this person here who is practicing lawlessness is contrasted with the person who is hoping in Christ. One is a believer and one is not. Okay? You're not convinced yet. You will be. So I believe that this practicing of lawlessness, not just a moment, because the verb attached to sin is the Greek word which means committing. It's an ongoing. It's an active in other words, the Greek verb tense is in the ongoing, active, present form. Okay, so John is speaking of a sinful lifestyle. Okay, this is, this is not a person who believes and has moments of sin. This is a person who lives in sin and might have moments of religion, might have moments of spirituality, might have moments of, I'm going to change, get my act together and do the right thing. But they don't seem to believe. You'll see why. Okay, that the lifestyle is in mind here. This is speaking of someone that continues in. And the main sin in mind, when you read Hebrews, it's unbelief. It's rebellion and rejection of the gospel, which, as we've seen, attached to unbelief is a lifestyle of living in with the body, sin. Okay, so there seems to be unrepentance going on, which if you go back to 1 John chapter 1, um, he already said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, right? The truth is not in that person. But if we confess our sins, well, he's faithful and just to forgive us. This, I believe, again, is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Some would say, no, this is speaking to a, these are both believers, but one admits their sin, the other one doesn't throughout their life. Well, I would beg to differ because of the fact that God is doing the forgiving and cleansing of all unrighteousness here, which happens the minute you believe, okay? So if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. But if you actually like confess, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And in fact, John will say, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, not practice sin, not live in sin, which 1 John 3 does differentiate between the two, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins. And we know he's talking about believers here because he goes, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay? So 1 John 3. Back to 1 John 3. I believe the practicing of lawlessness here 
assumes either a denial of sin, an excusing of sin, a trying to make up for sin with my own self-righteous works, but it is ultimately rooted in unbelief and unrepentance. Okay, so John will say this kind of life uh, is impossible for a believer in a few verses because God's seed abides in him. So I believe we're working with an unbeliever here. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, right? And in him, remember how we hope in him, and we're actually in him, uh, the rest of First John will say, in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. There's the keeping on. There's the practice. And, and everyone wants a, a dividing line. Okay, distinguish between a moment of sin and a lifestyle of sin. To be very honest, number one, I don't believe there's biblical precedence to give that. There's no none of that in scripture. And what they will say, typically the free grace extremists will say, since there's no clear dividing line or distinction between a moment of sin and practicing sin, then you can't even explain that, then you can't truly know you're saved because you can't truly know if you're doing sin or keeping on sinning. Which I say, why is that? Am I looking to my not sinning as proof that Jesus is enough? Or am I looking to Jesus and his word and what he's promised and who he is and what he's done as, yeah, that, that's enough. Because again, one is, and here's what happens. I'm, I'm foggy headed this morning. Here's what happens. They almost think because they stump you and, and you can't go, well, and you can't explain the difference between a lifestyle of sin and a moment of sin. Therefore, this text isn't saying what it explicitly says. It's like, well, since you can't measure a lifestyle of sin, 1 John 3 can't be talking about a believer can't be living in sin, since you can't even define that. Which I think is unreasonable, just because I can't, I guess, quantify or measure what a lifestyle of sinning is, you know, in a way that's like measurable and definable, doesn't mean that the scripture isn't saying what it says. I think at least we can say the keeping on sinning assumes, and this is more of an assumption, but it assumes unrepentance. It assumes no conviction. It assumes no remorse, no desire to change, no desires of the spirit, no conviction from the spirit. Otherwise, how, how, could, how could one keep on if the Lord disciplines and chastens his children eventually um, and would break that chain at, at some moment and maybe they'd fall back in? God disciplines and chastens his children. So that assumes none of that is happening for this person if they're keeping on, if they're practicing, if there's no interruption of it. Then I would say this, this can't be a believer. Whatever the sin is being described in verse 4, this sin is lawlessness, John tells us in verse 5, Jesus came to take it away, okay? So we have to ask, did Jesus cleanse us from moments of sin or from all sin? 1 John 1, 7 through 9, he cleanses us from all sin, all unrighteousness. Hebrews 8, right? God forgives us of all sin. The scripture says Jesus didn't cleanse us from most sin, a little bit of sin, the sin I'm conscious of, the sin I'm sorry for, all sin the minute you believe. Which I believe is what enables a person and empowers them and formats them to be able to not keep on sinning. But let's keep going. Okay, Jesus takes away all sin. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. In other words, 
there's no way to get around the fact that he's describing an unbeliever. Well, uh, abiding in him, choice, uh, seeing or knowing him, this is someone who believes, man. Try and get around it all you want. He's saying, someone who keeps on sinning doesn't believe. No one who keeps on sinning has truly believed. Like, they don't, they don't have Christ. They're not in him. They don't abide in him. They don't know him. They don't see him. So the question is, does John mean a believer can't sin at all? Or that a believer won't live in habitual, unrepentant, sin as a lifestyle. And again, the verb tense of sinning has to be the same as the verb tense of abiding here. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And I think we all agree, as we've talked about abiding, that abiding is a, an eternal reality. It's a mode of existence. It's a spiritual condition. I'm positioned in Christ. I abide forevermore. And then there's that decision daily to actually do what he says and love him in that kind of abiding sense, clinging to him. It's the difference between being, if you've ever, ever been on like an amusement park ride, being strapped in and you're secure by the straps, right? And that's what secures you the whole time. And then you cling on to the straps and you're not any more secure than you already were. You're just clinging to your security. That's the difference I believe between being abiding in Christ through faith positionally and choosing to do what he says daily. Those two differences in abiding. So the verb tense of sitting, sinning here, has to be consistent with whatever the abiding is. And we know this is a lifelong eternal thing, so the keeping on sinning has to be a lifestyle, which again, I would say, understanding the way the spirit moves, it assumes unrepentance, it assumes no conviction, it assumes no presence of the spirit. Okay, 1 John 2.17 talks about how we abide forever, we abide in the Son and the Father. But it says no one who sins, practices sin, keeps on sinning, essentially is in Christ. This is not someone who lost their salvation. The presence of this kind of sin means this person has never known or truly seen Christ in their spiritual eyes. Can't be a believer. So, the presence of this kind of sin means they've never known or seen Christ. It's something, uh, what he's about to say is that whatever this person is doing as an unbeliever, a Christian cannot do it. And John will repeat that idea in verse 8 and 9 right here. And he'll explain why. So verse 6 through 9 is speaking of a kind of sin that a Christian cannot do. Can a Christian sin? Absolutely. Can a Christian live in a habitual lifestyle of sin, unrepentance, unbelief, no conviction, rooted in unbelief? I don't believe so. Little children, let no one deceive you. And I think that's where the deception comes in is, hey, you can live in sin and, be and belief. You can have a, a lifelong experience of, you know, let's say you come to Christ, you say you believe, you raise your hand in Sunday school at six, the rest of your life, you live in unbelief, deny Christ, teach against him. You're an atheist, you hate God, you hate his people, you worship Satan, you live in sin. That person can't truly know him per 1 John 3. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So whatever this practicing of sin is, it's consistent with the nature of the serpent. Why do you think God reformats our very spiritual DNA and gives us a new nature and a new heart? We're almost done, I promise. There's like a few more verses. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, contrasted with the person who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 
This is for Gnostics. This is for, but John's writing to believers and he's, he's fighting against Gnosticism. Does that change what's being said here? Even if you apply it in that sense? That someone is of the devil if they make a practice of sinning? What does of the devil sound like? For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. Rebellion, rejection, that unbelief and unwillingness to trust in God, but assume your own place as your own God, right? The devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So notice that destroying of the works of the devil right here is taking away sin in verse 5. Is this not consistent with Romans 6? Okay, so here's what we know. The righteousness here is contrasted with the lifestyle of sin and being of the devil in verse 8. John isn't saying that you practice righteousness to become righteous, but rather the practicing of righteousness, Romans 2, the outworking of the law being written on the heart, the spirit accomplishing fruit and work in the life, proves and validates the righteousness or the faith of that person. As he is righteous. Who? Christ. Because whoever hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Or another way of saying it, whoever hopes in Christ and trusts in him uh, lives righteous as he is righteous. Is he talking about perfection? No, Christ is perfect for us. Is he talking about looking to my works and relying on that and every day looking for enough evidence to know I believe? No. It's just walking with God and looking to him and righteousness is the fruit of that faith that has, been, has taken root in a person. Okay? So this is a lifestyle, a practicing, a continual doing which assumes no chastening, no repentance, no conviction, no uh, discipline from God as a, as a loving father. If there's none of that, is that a believer? Woo! I don't think so. Okay. Pursuing and growing in purity and living pure and doing what they see as Christ does in the scripture and the other one just keeps on sinning. It's a practice of sinning. Now, we already saw that believers can struggle with sin. And guess what? That doesn't negate the fact they have an advocate. So I'm not saying a believer, and be careful I say this. I'm saying a believer will not and a believer cannot do this practicing, this continual lifestyle of habitual, unrepentant sin rooted in unbelief. It's not, it doesn't seem to be possible. You can look for a measurement and you can look for a standard. You can go, well, how much is enough? And how do we know we're walking? That all of those questions are great. Maybe we can find an answer to them. Maybe we never will. It doesn't change what the text says. You can try and reason through it and find all the logic logical ways this I need I need this to compute I need a standard to follow I need a way to know I believed I need to know that I have enough evidence you can do that that doesn't change the fact of what the text clearly says if we say we have no sin we de we deceive ourselves but if we confess our sins he makes us righteous he cleanses us from all sin that's a promise this person seems to be denying their sinfulness or at least trying to excuse it or justify it whatever it may be okay now here's where we get to the interesting part. No one born of God, a believer, makes a practice of sinning. God's seed abides in him. In other words, watch, you can't. This isn't like, hey, an unbeliever or a, a, someone who's truly in Christ, 
you know, they will choose not to do that and they'll, they'll work really hard. It's that the very, this is why we brought in the new nature and the new heart and the new spirit and the conscience. All of that bleeds into this as to why a believer by the grace of God is empowered to not make a practice of habitual unrepentant sin. He can't keep on sinning because he's been born of God. It doesn't get any clearer. And I know you want to find a workaround. I know you want to find a way out of this so you can keep hanging on to sin and be like, I believed a long time ago. I know it. I know. I, I asked someone in the comments section the other day who's like, I've listened to 13 hours of this and you did it. He gave me no scriptural arguments. He gave me no biblical reasoning for his stances. All his statements were just like human reasoning, right? And so I go, look, and I, and I want to ask you guys this too. I'm going to ask you this too. Why is it so frustrating for you for this to be true? In other words, let, let me say it a different way. Do you want this to be true or do you actually not want this to be true? Do you have a preference? Do you have a dog in the fight? Do you have a preference when it comes to, I want it to just be grace and faith, which means a believer can, doesn't ever have to bear fruit or good works or have transformation or evidence of the spirit. Do you have a preference that maybe you're bringing to the text and you're presupposing and you're reading all these passages through the lens of what you want to be true and instead of submitting to what is actually true, you're going, I need to make the scriptures conform to what I want to be true. I want salvation to look like this. I want faith to look like this. I want salvation to allow for this. And I want grace to mean this. Do, can you get around this text? By this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Well, that's the person who lives in unbelief. Yeah, they are living in unbelief. It is a perpetual, continual lifestyle of not just unbelief, but what is also called lawlessness, living outside of the law. So of course, unbelief is present. So essentially what we're saying is a believer cannot, someone who's truly of Christ, born again of the Spirit, I'm not saying this, Scripture is, will not find themselves in a place, a state of unbelief. Because attached to unbelief is always a lifestyle of sin. You can't separate the two. You can't go, well, the sin here is, is, is to not believe the gospel. That is the main sin, but accompanied with that is always a lifestyle of doing whatever I feel and enjoy and the passions of my flesh and the desires of my body. And you give yourself over to that because you reject the gospel. Well, I'm trying to do good and do what God wants. We saw that in Romans 6 through 8. No one born of God keeps on, makes a practice of sinning. So this does kind of, if you make this about unbelief, then this flies in the face of, in the face of the extreme, extremist gr free grace view, which says, you know, uh, a believer can believe today and tomorrow live in unbelief into death. Apparently the scripture says, if you're going to make sin just the unbelief here, that that's not possible for a believer. And how you make sense of that is 1 John 2, that if they left us, they were never of us. It's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of devil. Whoever practices righteousness is not of God. Or whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. So now you can't say, well, the sinning here is unbelief only. Because John brings in very practical things a believer will do 
with their body, in their lifestyle, versus what an unbeliever will not do with their body and in their lifestyle. And an unbeliever will not practice righteousness or love the spiritual brethren, the people of God, image bearers of God. Doesn't mean they won't have moments of what the culture defines as love and having good intent, and, but the, the, the love God has for his people, the love I have for God expressed to his people, an unbeliever won't have that. An unbeliever doesn't want to love God. An unbeliever doesn't want to glorify God. Has no intent to do that. Even though they're like, I'm doing good works. I'm being nice to my family. I just sold my home. So oh, that's nice. But you don't do that because you love God or want to glorify him. You do that ultimately because it terminates on you and centered around you. Well, not always. Okay, fine. But it ultimately doesn't reflect back to God. It's all about, I don't know, person involved or you and your selfish ambition or maybe there's no selfishness involved and you're like I just wanted to do a good deed can you can you just let me have that I'll let you have that but it doesn't mean God merits you anything for that because it doesn't make up for the sin you've done so all the amount of good you try and do doesn't change the fact you have violated the law of God you fall short of his standard there's children of the devil who practice sinning what does that mean they don't practice righteousness they don't love God or love the children of God that's something an unbeliever can't do. Now, to continue in sin and make a practice of this habitual, unrepentant, not loving God, not loving people, living in sin, is not possible for someone who has been born of God. So the question is, why can't a Christian, Why rather, why won't a Christian? Because not only does it say... Um, uh, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Not only does it say they, a believer won't do this, it actually says a believer can't. Oh, so vi God violates our free will. Now, no, again, you chose to believe. What God produces through your decision to believe is all this beautiful stuff, all these beautiful gifts that enable me to not keep on sinning. It, God has put up all the necessary safety precautions and all the, he's taken all the measures to make sure his children as new creation will not practice continually a habitual lifestyle of unrepentant sin. I think all of those characteristics come together. It's unrepentant. There's no conviction. It's a lifestyle. There's no intent to change. It's all of that. And Christians won't do these things because of the fact that per the word of John, here, it is impossible. It is an impossibility. And you go, why? First John 5.18, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So, so this, watch, watch. If you say sinning is unbelief, that doesn't make any sense. Because the person who is choosing to not continue in sin is already born of God and has chosen to believe, has chosen to believe. Meaning, everyone who has been born of God, I am born of God. Because I've believed and I'm born of God, now I will not keep on sinning. So you can't say, well, that's, that's, hey, I'm a believer, I'm born again, now I will not continue in unbelief. I'm already out of unbelief. I'm in faith. That's a, that's a double, there's no reason to unnecessarily repeat that. It wouldn't make any sense. The keeping on sinning is 
I'm practicing unrighteousness. I'm practicing hatred of brother. I'm choosing not to love God. But he who is born of God protects him and the evil one doesn't touch him. We know that we're from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So when it comes to this statement, as it relates to bringing a brother or a sin that doesn't lead to death, we can bring all that into later. I've, I've done a whole message on 1 John 5. Look, if you want to be born, spiritually reborn, a brand new creation with a new heart, a new identity, a new, a completely standing, a right relationship with God, a brand new friendship with the Creator. He can be filled with the Spirit. You can have a new heart. You can have a new mind. You can have new desires. And we talked about how like those things don't guarantee any degree of anything, but you can have this new born-again experience and be a spiritually living being. You have to believe in the Son. The people who are keeping on sinning and live in sin and unbelief, they don't have faith or trust in the Son of God. One of the ways God protects, uh, go back to 1 John 5, is I believe the people of God play a role in each other's lives when it comes to God ensuring they won't live in habitual unrepentant sin. The second thing, so you go, what about hermits? Second thing, is the spirit of God and the new nature and the new mode of existence as children of God. And this all assumes the spirit. In other words, the seed that abides in a believer prevents and negates the ability to keep on living in sin. And I believe consistently with 1 John, God's seed is his spirit. That's why we talked about the new nature in episode three or four, to let you know that what God reproduces in you through your faith, what that faith reproduces is it will produce after its own kind. The likeness of God, partakers of the divine nature. We are not gods, we are children of God. And because of that identity and position and the spirit of God inside of us, the keeping on sinning is an impossibility. The whole section is about practice and lifestyle. And I, I don't really know where to end from here. I, I know you guys want me to like explain, well, define keeping on sinning. Okay, let me do my best biblically. To keep on sinning, again, assumes no conviction. Well, maybe there is conviction present. No repentance, no intent to change possibly. Um, it's a way of life. The majority of your life is summed up by sinfulness. Um, how else would I qualify that? Living in sin, um, I wouldn't say involves no remorse, but I would say it's rooted in unbelief. It involves no chastening and no correction and no discipline of God to interrupt that process of keeping on sinning. Uh, this doesn't seem to be like, I, I'm sinning for a long time, and then I come back to God, and then I keep sinning, and then I come back to God. This is like, I have one program, and it's like sin, one direction, one direction. That doesn't seem consistent at all with what we've read about so far about a believer. Believe me when I say I want to get around it. Like my flesh wells up and wants to go, this, I don't want this to be true. But I, 
if God's word says it is, and you're fighting against it after all this time, after all this evidence, you might have an issue of your preference for you is more important than what God's word actually says. I know you want to be able to get away with, or not, not even get away with, but you, you want room for a, a lifetime of mistakes. And guess what? We have an advocate with the Father. But the best way I can explain a believer having moments or struggling with sin, even seasons of sin, is that there is conviction. There's God's discipline. There's chastening. There's the consequences God even gives me over to that bring me back to Him. There's a heart of repentance involved. Like, I, I, I don't want to do this. I have a desire to not do it. I have a desire to do the right thing, which we would say even in an unbeliever happens according to Romans 6. But it's this new, it's not just a desire to do the right thing now. It's a desire to glorify God and represent Him as His child, to love Him. That, that's the new desire. That's the new desire that a, an unbeliever doesn't have. They just want to do the right thing, and it's like just, just to, for whatever reason. It's not to love or glorify God as an unbeliever. Whereas the unbeliever in sin, continual, is rooted in unbelief, rejection of the gospel, um, doesn't want Christ's righteousness. And again, I, I would say there's no intent to change or or even if there is, it's, it's centered around self. Um, but it's like, it's like I give myself over to sin instead of give myself over to God. That's why Romans 6 and 7 uses the language it does. You, you are a slave to who you present yourself to. Is there any way around it at this point? I don't think so. I don't think so. Tomorrow's officially going to be the final, I promise, last episode of this series. Episode 7, we're going to address James chapter 2. The way the Lordship Salvation individual communicates it, the way the Free Grace individual communicates it, and what it actually says. I hope I have done the right thing in terms of, I hope I've done my best to communicate these ideas, to make it crystal abundantly clear. that there is a difference in lifestyle guaranteed between a believer and an unbeliever. There is. I can't get around it. Every time I look at scripture, holistically, all the way through, I can't get around it. A believer fundamentally will, at some point, in some degree, in some way, live different. It can't stay the same. It's an impossibility. Now, dying on your deathbed, giving your life to Christ is different. But you know what I mean. Don't try and find a workaround. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this question. Are you okay with this being true? Do you have a preference? Do, would you rather this be true or rather, would you rather this not be true? Some people don't want this to be true. And they human, they just reason through this and, and look for all these different logical conclusions as to disprove what the scripture explicitly says. And they're not evaluating with spiritual eyes. Again, just because there is no clear measurement of here's practicing sin and here's a moment of sin doesn't mean the scripture isn't saying what it is. Some of you want that measurement so you know how much you can get away with. 
Some of you want that measurement and that line so you can see how close you can get to it without not being considered an unsafe person. And some of you want just the measurement so you can look at you, look at your efforts, look at your obedience and go, ah yes, now I know. When that's not what scripture communicates. Just because things naturally result from faith doesn't mean you should look at those things ultimately or trust in them or find security in them or let them bolster your confidence. My confidence is him. My boldness comes from him. My, I have faith in him. And of course, there will be things in life that bear witness to the faith I have so that there's a, there's a convincing that is beyond dispute that the Spirit of God testifies of. And I'm just asking, do you have a dog in this fight? Would you rather it be one way or the other? Or do you just want to be honest and truthful to what the scripture teaches? Come on, be honest. Some of you don't want this to be true. I get it. And you will fight against this with every bone in your body, every pulled out scripture, every, every isolated scripture you pull right out of his context to make something. Have I done any of that? Or have I read everything in its full context? So you can't say the points I've made are, oh, he does, he read those, he isolated those verses. He's eisegeting. Really? Reading three chapters of Romans is eisegeting? To make sure we get the clear point across that unbelievers live fundamentally different than believers? So just, man, go think about this. Because God has called us to, formatted us for, recreated us to live different. Period. That's what faith will always produce. Is a change in life. Do you know why? Everyone is living out their beliefs. Everyone. Everyone on this TikTok live stream, everyone on this YouTube live stream, everyone that is breathing right now and ever has breathed. Your beliefs, your worldview drive your life. Every decision you make is based on what you believe. So even when it comes to not even thinking about faith in a biblical sense, what you believe, you live according to that. So you can tell me all day, I believe this, I'm convinced this. If your lifestyle says something differently and the overall majority of your life speaks differently and contradicts your confession, you're living out your true beliefs and you're self-deceived about what you think you believe. Period. So go enjoy that. That's all I have to say today because I love you guys and I'm going to give it to you the way it needs to be delivered. We've been nice and soft and I've given assurance and security. Now it's time to like choose. Will you believe what the word of God says? And again, will I look at him and let him produce transformation and fruit and good works in my life? Or will I deny that reality or I look at my efforts and my obedience and my witness as a form of security that replaces Jesus and the simple gospel. We're saved through faith by grace alone. All right? Love you guys. Go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. Check out everything we have. New podcast comes out today. Uh, on a, Our second podcast, Above Reproach Church Podcast, all about spiritual warfare. The link is in the description below or on my TikTok profile. And I think that's it. You guys... Go sit with the Lord on this and just let him lead you into the truth. That's what he does, right?